Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in western Montana. And we're live. All right, here we go. Well, thanks for coming, you two. Really appreciate it. Thanks our for f- having us. Yeah. Our first guests, Amber and Rami. Amber Lynn Vital. Is that how you say your last name? Amber Lynn Vital. Vital. And Rami Mon, right? <laughs> Rami Mom. Rami yeah. Mon. M A M. M A M. All right. Where does that, like, what's the, uh, what's the term? Origin. Yeah, what's the origin of that last name? So my dad's Cambodian. So that's a Cambodian name. Do you know like uh, what it means? A lot of last names have like meaning behind it, or yeah, you know, I've gotten different, um, you know, definitions of it. Um, one of them is it means squash. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> and, the verb or the noun? <laughs> uh, the, or the game? Ooh, or the game. <laughs> um, and another one is um, it's the. Um, well, fish sauce, if you remember what fish sauce and mm-hmm. like the fermented shrimp paste in Southeast Asia, yeah. that's actually another name for it as well. It's mom. Yeah. And so yeah. you'll see uh, like a brand of it is M-A-M. Mm-hmm. And so it's like squash and fermented fish paste. So. <laughs> that's pretty accurate. <laughs> Sounds like a th- Southeast Asian meal. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. No wonder I like you. <laughs> Can you pull the mic just a little bit closer yeah. to you? Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, we didn't really have any plans on on what to talk about, but uh, I don't I don't know really know anything about your origin stories, your how you guys were raised, like where you guys met. So I was. Oh no, we do know that, but I don't know. Like I don't know much about your 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 life, Rami. Like where where did you grow up? Where were you born? Well, I was actually born in Cambodia. You were. Yeah. Okay. And it was um, in 1970, like right when all the chaos was happening there in that part of the world. Um, So, you know, my family has a lot of horror stories about, you know, Vietnam War and Khmer Rouge and what happened to um, the country. And, um, And so after that, like shortly after being born, my mom moved to Ohio. Well, that's where she's from originally, and um, and so that's where I I grew up, um, and um, and then spent, you know, moved on from there to New York. Lived in New York for a very long time, and um, and also in Honolulu, Hawaii. So mm-hmm. New York and Hawaii are where I really consider home. Yeah. And, um, yeah. When did you, when'd you move to Hawaii? That was in 1999, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Was it the Big Island or? Oahu. Oahu? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I was there for eight years. And what were you doing there? A lot of things. <laughs> um, I was surfing. I learned how to surf. And, you know, I was cooking as well. I was working uh, at one of the top restaurants there. And um, I was doing landscaping and just, you know, living that island life. It was, uh, you know, it's it was definitely a, a magical chapter in my life. Mm. 
Do you miss that aspect of living, or especially after this very harsh Montana winter? Yeah. Mon- Montana winter. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, get me out of here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have two seasons: winter and summer. Yeah. Yeah. Really, the shoulder yeah. seasons don't really exist here. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And so, is that kind of how you got started with um, with cooking? Was in in Honolulu? No, or? I got started or in what? New York. You did. Yeah. Okay. And and on that note, well, at least I've heard the story. I don't know if you have. Jay, but um, I would love for you to reshare the story uh, of, I don't know if this is your first restaurant experience, um, but something about herbs comes to mind uh, oh, yeah. and walking in yeah. to a space. <laughs> yeah. I'd love if you can share that story. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So there's two ways you get into the very high-end culinary uh, industry. Uh, either you, you go to culinary school or you apprentice your way through and I wasn't you know I didn't go to culinary school and I was like okay I really want to learn and experience in a particular restaurant and um, I didn't have the experience or knowledge about um, (laughs) anything about it at that time (laughs) I had a passion for it I mean I collected cookbooks from a very young age but um, you know I walked into this restaurant and um, I don't, I don't even think I had a resume, or I just like walked in there. I was like, "What can I say to the chef to like have him hire me on the spot?" Right? <laughs> and uh, I put on this fake French accent like this, <laughs> and I walked in there and I was like, "Hello, my name is Rami. I come from France. I would like to work here with you." Blah 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 blah. And he literally hired me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Because all French people can cook. Right. I guess so. I guess he was like, okay, we're going to see what this guy's about. And so he like threw me in there, right? And so I'm like trying my best to sort of emulate and learn. And that's really how you learn. Mm -hmm. You just watch and you emulate. They show you what they want done and you repeat it. But there's a lot of things I didn't know. Like I didn't know. Like one of the one of the cooks was like, "Oh, can you go get these herbs? Like, go get some thyme and this and that." And I don't even know what thyme looked like. <laughs> I walked in there, I'm like, "Oh, which one of these herbs is thyme?" And so that was the beginning of my culinary career. And before you know it, I was I worked my way up in New York's top restaurants and ended up becoming a culinary instructor. So I mean, it was definitely a um, a path that even though I didn't have a, um, you know, a formal education, I had a passion for learning and yeah. understanding and, and that's what, you know, drove me for 20 you something know, years in that industry. You were then there for that long. Oh yeah. So that's, that's a long time to come to a decision that you don't want to open your own restaurant. Well, it didn't take me that long. No, it didn't take me that long to figure that one out. <clears throat> even then it's like the people that I worked for that had their own restaurants I saw how limited their life was I mean at that time I'm like still in my 20s I'm like I, I there's so much I want to experience there's I still was seeking freedom mm-hmm. in so many ways I want I still had this sense of adventure and exploration and if you own your own restaurant you're married to that and that's that and I respect people that can do that that's an amazing thing to do it's an amazing commitment but 
it it wasn't something that I was ready for then or even now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're kind of coming to that point, even though only being open a year. We're mm-hmm. just like, well, you know, is this does this fit into our lives and what and how we want our our lives to to play out? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a challenge because on one hand, we're really passionate about it and and want to cook for people and educate the people on how to eat better. But on the other hand, we want to go climbing for two months mm-hmm. and or do impromptu trips for wherever. And so it's really hard to find that balance. And people, when you do own a restaurant, people expect you to be open like mm-hmm. all the time. And fortunately, we do have some really good patrons that come in and applaud our, our time off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a challenge to try and balance. I don't, I don't know if it's possible. Maybe like a seasonal restaurant or something. Mm-hmm. But... Those are tough to maintain um, audience ship. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about subscription dining, you know, like mm -hmm. you're, you belong to a club and then there are certain nights that you can attend. And if you can't fill your seat, you can send someone else in. Mm -hmm. And that really was a model that can work in the city, but like anything that can keep you economically afloat, but you're only serving the elite. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And your goal and our goal is to share with, everyone mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly i mean that's a big part of with for us with having our farm but then also opening the cafe to complement it is that we're able to bring semi-affordable food to all people not just to the upper class and i mm-hmm. mean we've we've toyed with the idea of doing like fine dining farm to table dinners instead because maybe it would give us more freedom or doing only fancy brunches on the weekend because maybe it would give us more freedom but at the end of the day it doesn't seem to matter how how detached we try to allow ourselves to be owning a restaurant you have to be so involved unless you really have employees that you trust to not just do an amazing job cooking and serving but to be able to create and like really sharing your vision to give that to your customers and that's hard to come by and troubleshoot when something goes awry Mm -hmm. are they going to make the right decision yeah it's that i mean we talk about micromanaging all the time you know how do you hire people who are better than you or you raise them up to be better than you that's the only way to give yourself freedom Mm -hmm. yeah and the better you want to make your restaurant or bakery the more attached you become. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regardless, like no one's yeah. going to do it better than you. Mm-hmm. It's your place. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's why I, I was, I was, I was happy to work for people better than me, way better than me. I mean, light years better than me mm-hmm. because I was excited to learn. Um, I, I worked under some amazing chefs. I mean, chefs, if I were to, throw out their names you would know who they are Mm -hmm. um and it was just amazing to watch them and to learn for them Mm -hmm. and that for me was exciting i I wasn't attached Mm -hmm. i I could leave anytime right you know Mm -hmm. i can leave this restaurant and go travel the world and come back and take another job in a restaurant if i wanted to Mm -hmm. that that was the type of freedom that i was looking for Mm -hmm. as well as learning the craft and mastering certain components of it i guess yeah (sighs) it's a bit like a like religion i think 
because your religion asks you to believe. And if you're learning from someone better than you, a master, you know, you're learning to believe what they believe and you're crafting your skill after their skill set. And are you learning that so that you can then become the master, that you can become the priest, that you can become the president, you know, religion, government, whatever it is, or are you learning it as a part of your whole experience of just being here in this life Mm -hmm. on this planet and the free person, everything is an experience. You know, you hear that in Zen Buddhism, you hear that in Ayurveda. It's all just about experience. Mm -hmm. We imprison ourselves by thinking that we then need to replace the master, replace the priest, replace the guru, replace the president, the king. That is where we get trapped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thinking that we can just burn the whole place down and start over with with another individual Mm -hmm. as the master. Like, I, I mean, humanity does that or has that idea it's, I mean, it's across cultures, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how coups and rebellions happen. It's like, okay, well, now you've rebelled against this potential oppressor. It's like, all right, well, what do you have in place of mm-hmm. it? Because there's a void. And when a void sucks in mm-hmm. everything, mm-hmm. really. Nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah, it does. So, like, what do you replace it with? Right. Yeah. And it's usually the same story, same psychology, different master. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, so you decided, was it, you were in New York when you decided you didn't really want to pursue necessarily a career in, in the food industry anymore, or, or was it in Hawaii? Let's see, where was I? Hmm. I, I guess think I was in India when I decided that. Speaking yeah. of gurus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I, I was in India for quite a, quite a long time. I was there for just over six months mm-hmm. traveling and living there. And um, and I was like, okay, when I come back to the States, it's like I'm not going back into the culinary business. I'm not going to do that anymore. Instead, I went into the wine business, <laughs> <laughs> and which is a different aspect of restaurant, the restaurant business. And it was one of those aspects that I was deeply passionate about early on and wanting to learn about wine and winemaking and, um, and to get, you know, nerdy about it, I Mm -hmm. guess, you know, and to be able to articulate, um, different regions of wine, different varietals of wine. Um, so, I mean, that's what I got into after that, along with other things too. I mean, when I came back, to the States, I, I got into farming for the first time, um, out in California, I, mm-hmm. I was growing medical cannabis Yeah, and that was a very eye opening, um, chapter in my life too. Um, you know, understanding cannabis from the way Californians see it, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, they are very knowledgeable overall about it as a medicinal plant and everyone that I was interacting with were activists and, you know, patients, terminally ill patients, autistic children. I mean, my, 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 um, my world was blown when I was, um, learning medical cannabis in California. Yeah. What did you, 
what'd you come to like you said it was an eye-opening experience so like what what was it you know like what what'd you expect what were your, right yeah. It, yeah you know it's like you walk first of all i mean coming from new york right it's like we don't have the dispensaries like the way that california does it's like you if you want something you're getting it from you know someone on the corner on and you don't even know what you're getting and there's there's a whole culture around that too right um, that is very um, ignorant, I guess. Yeah. I mean, simply put. Um, and so going into California, you walk into a dispensary and it's a freaking menu of like all this stuff. It's like you're in an ice cream shop and you're like, wow, you know? But once you get over that wow, it's like, no, this one is used for this. This one is for that. Or, you know, this one has high CBD because of this. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know? I mean, it was really enlightening mm. in in that way, um, and so I mean, I just learned a lot, and I I was really at the epicenter of cannabis activism when I arrived in California. I mean, it was what year was this? This was um, or years? Yeah, I mean, I think it was around two thousand, early two thousands. Yeah. I forget which year. So medical was was approved like it was yeah oh yeah point yeah it was approved it was 95 yeah yeah oh was it really i didn't realize it was that early in cali yeah okay 1995 proposition 215 i think it was 1995 okay which made it legal for if you had um for for medical use yeah and recreational use i believe yeah that was before then the organic certification was even enacted Mm -hmm. that's Mm. crazy isn't that crazy Mm. So we had medical marijuana before we had the organic food movement really happening on that, the on the national level. That might USDA. explain some of the problems as far as clean yeah. growing. <laughs> yeah, which is a whole other can of worms when you look into the marijuana industry and how we grow this medicine now. It's, I mean, it's just a time of the culture. It's like how when there's a new when there's a new process or new thing in a culture. It's and we decide how how to operate or like how are we gonna how are we gonna grow this marijuana instead of being like well this is a plant that requires outdoor sunlight it's like well with our egocentrism in this culture we think that we can do it best and so we bring it indoors we sterilize everything we void it from nature and then we try and mimic this as as it is medicine and it's not really i mean it'll get you high that that plant is a Purdue brilliant chemist. It can produce, I don't know, what is it, 80 different compounds in it, 80 plus known so far. And so it's like, it's a brilliant chemist and we have the ability to control, relatively speaking, the ability for it to make these various compounds in different concentrations. But instead of being like, you know, maybe we should like use enclosed greenhouses at the very least and have the full spectrum of, of, of sunlight hitting it to, mm-hmm. so that it can, optimize its chemistry and its ability to produce these compounds. But no, we're going to put it under LED lights and people are like, well, yeah, LED lights are like the sun. It's like, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're definitely no not. No way, just certain aspects. Yeah, just certain aspects. Yeah. And it's the same thing with food. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, look what's happening in the food industry. Um, you know, people growing stuff with uh, has never seen the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, especially mm-hmm. livestock, which is like, how can you feel comfortable purchasing this chicken that has never seen the outdoors or 
this meat product that has never never had sunlight on it. It's mm-hmm. like, what are you ingesting? What do they have to like feed that animal to sort of compensate for that lack of fresh air and sun? So there, there's a correlation there. Yes. You know, we're seeing this through all aspects of um, agriculture, not just in medical cannabis, no. but just in the food industry in general. Yeah. I wonder if one of the reasons why a lot of the 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 medical marijuana industry went indoors is first there was rules about it like in massachusetts when i was growing medical cannabis we couldn't grow outside it had to be indoors exclusively and so like the mm-hmm. the law forced us to go inside even though we wished most of the people growing wished to be outside growing so mm-hmm. yeah and again I, it's the culture that's doing it yeah like where does that law even come from a, a place of fear of oh my gosh if our youth see those plants we're going to produce a bunch of stoners. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to be good factory workers. Hide them. Hide the plants. Yeah. So on a hot day, you know, it could enter the wind and everyone could get high by accident. <laughs> yeah. School children yeah. driving by. It could be horrible. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> <laughs> there have been some movies about that. Yeah. But even going indoors, too, it's like you, there had to be a compensation. And that compensation in the medical in, in in the cannabis world was actually pretty incredible you know hydroponics and all of the other stuff i mean the optimization of the plant under those conditions i think people forgot like no like the best medicine is growing under the sun and fresh air but mm-hmm. people are growing some pretty amazing stuff indoors and they've just have gotten used to that in in so many ways because yeah. they still mm-hmm. produce something that had potency and and you still had your privacy i guess Mm, it's very easy to get carried away when you start playing god it starts to be very exciting to see what you can make a plant do and enslave that plant to your will yeah Mm -hmm. and we do that in all kinds of ways this is why i love to discuss veganism versus you know vegetarianism versus omnivore opportunivore because we're all enslaving living things for our purposes Mm -hmm. to what extent are you willing to do that Mm -hmm. that's the essence of agriculture is in a way enslaving everything to or anything that we are want and able to consume and even some things that we aren't able to consume we 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 artificially select them so that they don't produce certain compounds that poison us yeah like you know we like canola like canola Mm -hmm. or like even like even like a, a cassava Right. Or because like that's because that has um, what's the it's like uh, cy- cyanide, right? A high level oh, cyanide. Right. And so that the process it, I think it's this cassava, mm-hmm. um, but you have to process it a very specific way in order to pull out that cyanide in it. And then it's like it's a staple. It's like one of the largest, hmm. gr- most highly produced crops around for carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keeping us alive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's like a necessary evil for us in a way. I mean. If we wanted to be hunter-gatherers, we could, but we wouldn't have 8 billion people on this planet. Right. It would be a very different world in which we lived in. and Yeah. And then fruitarianism, you know, just the whole <laughs> idea that you only eat it if it fell off of a tree or a bush. You never <laughs> pluck it. You never dig it up. You never pull it up. It has to have been offered to you. It's a, it's a very mm. interesting light way to live on the planet and experience for a time but Mm -hmm. that you know we humans don't like that Mm -hmm. long term because it 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 negates our survival you have to really surrender to well 
you know, if circumstance allows me to live, great. And if it doesn't, well, I'll do it again. Yeah. Next time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just like picturing somebody going around and when once they find the last fruit being like, well, that was a good run. (laughs) This is it for this lifetime. Yeah. Next time, maybe it'll be a better year. Right. Can't do that in Montana. But that's that's like the essence of um, what's the term? Like agency is that we are able to interact and manipulate our environment supposedly for the betterment of ourselves and for society. And that's why we have, you know, monocultures like monoculture did solve problems. You know, the Green Revolution did solve a lot of our problems, but it also had externalities that we are now facing today that now we're like trying to go back to the roots, if you will, Mm -hmm. like going back to a more natural way to live, going back to like growing in a permaculture way and having many plants on the landscape. And it's like, that could work, but we also have 8 billion people. Can you feed 8 billion people mm-hmm. through through permaculture? And that's that's a big question. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's possible, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't. It's just, right. yeah, it's just a different, different modality through yeah. which we live. And on Friday night, can you harvest enough for the farmer's market the next day if your stuff isn't in a row? Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels weird to grow in rows, but it also allows, it frees up my time. If I grew 40 different plants and had to hand harvest everything instead of using these tools to make it that much more efficient, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be operating as a farmer. I mean, we try to grow many different kinds of plants and, and even like even intercropping, people are like, oh, like that's a, everyone should be doing this. It's like, well, have you tried to mm-hmm. operate a, a profitable farm and intercrop it's like it you can do it but even just intercropping radish and, and lettuce when those radish really start to grow if you haven't harv- harvested those lettuce yet so these har- or these lettuces are going to be in oblong shapes and not consistent and then you have to like spend extra effort to try and educate educate the consumer mm-hmm. being like well this lettuce just looks a little funny because i'm intercropping isn't that what you wanted it's like, no, right. no, they don't. They want perfectly shaped fruit and vegetables at all times. And that's where we've gotten to today. Right. And if it's not perfect, they want it to be discounted or cheaper because it doesn't look perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah. It is an odd thing. It is. Even though the same amount of calories, the same amount of, of nutrients per, per gram are in that lettuce, whether or not it looks like a football or a perfect mm-hmm. sphere or whatever. Uh, yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, they all get processed in some way for our consumption. And so it's not as if you get to hold on to to enjoy the beauty of that symmetry and perfection of a head of lettuce. You break it down. You break it down. Yeah. So that our bodies can then break it down. And then it recombines into us is essentially what food does. So we 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 ingest a tomato. But that tomato doesn't, you know, as soon as we start chewing it, we're disintegrating the the the, the makeup that is mm-hmm. that makes a tomato that we, we would we perceive as a tomato. We break that down, the skin's torn off so we can access those carbohydrates and those sugars. We break down those sugars, we pull the zinc out and we put it into our testes and make sperm out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's life. Like it life is like all of these molecules and elements recombining and disintegrating and recombining together and we're able to perceive the world through that recombination of of these elements but that's exactly why the supplement industry thinks that you can just take zinc oxide 
instead of a tomato and have the same effect. Mm. Is it possible? I think it's been pretty well demonstrated that it's not. How so? No, for making up your body, there's all the cofactors. And then the side effects of just having something by itself. And Mm -hmm. so bringing it back around to cannabis, the difference between creating a market that appreciates outdoor grown, you know, random chemistry based on the season, based on the state, the climate, uh, as opposed to a market that wants a particular percentage of particular phytocannabinoids or other compounds in that plant. And so we're forcing it one way. And what has happened is then there are side effects of that. When that plant is forced to be very high in THC, Delta 9 THC, you know, there are going to be side effects. And when it, when it's grown under um, the duress of a gray political system and legal system that creates another issue and side effect around that plant compared to if it were just allowed in your whole country and you could grow it in your backyard, you could grow it anywhere. And if you said, Hey, I want some of that, like Johnson city, Tennessee stuff. Cause it in that environment produces these phytocannabinoids. And I want some of that Ashland, Oregon stuff. Cause in that environment, it gets these other ones. Mm. And, you may be in Johnson City, Tennessee, but you need the Ashland, Oregon version, mm-hmm. you know. And and if we un, if we would just dive into that education, we could do so much more with it and let the plant be what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true about the plants that we grow for food. But what it takes is re-educating the whole consumer base mm-hmm. Which to is want so that. Hard. And monoculture is what yielded these perfect fruits and vegetables, and then. Seemingly. The population was trained to expect that. And, you know, I, you, when we were talking earlier, I was thinking about, like, my grandparents being like, doesn't matter what it looks like, it all winds up the same place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, exactly. Like yeah. you'd be told as a kid, oh, so what, there's some spots on your lettuce, it's all going the same place, which was just a couple generations ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now we're entitled enough to think that it has to be perfect mm-hmm. before we ingest it or, mm-hmm. or it's something not fit terrible. Or for consumption. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a fascinating psychology. Yeah. Like, where did that come from? Right. Let's change the idea of what fit for consumption means. Right. But that requires re-education. It does. If you say, yes, this crazy oblong shape and all these different sizes of this mix of greens, I ran it through my analyzer and it actually has really high percentages of this or that or the other thing and this is much better for you. You know, how? Do, what do we have to do to... I think people have to get into the farm and they have mm-hmm. to see it and they have to see the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then how many people have the opportunity to do that? I mean, one of our ideas, because we so want to create the whole food forest, permaculture, intercropping kind of a scenario on our land, but I don't want to harvest that. I, I, I see the difference between the rows and the intercropping, but what if you then invite people to come harvest their own stuff? Yeah. And you give them a basket and you charge per basket and you give them a little tutorial on how to harvest things or you have some minders around. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at least as an educational experience, they learn what to expect, what they should expect from the food they're going to consume. And then the next time they see some crazy shaped lettuce and your sign says, hey, it was intercropped with radishes, they're like, oh. I saw that, and I remember why it's this way. Poor little lettuce. It's so cool. Don't worry. I'll eat you. I still appreciate you. you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
when yeah. consumers look at a, at a lettuce, they see a lettuce. But when farmers look at a lettuce, what they see is, okay, so I spent all this research finding the right varieties in my, in my environment to grow. I ordered those seeds. I ordered the fertilizers. I main, you know, had, you know, trying to maximize our, um, our soil organic matter and incorporate various soil management strategies. And then we seed that lettuce and it's, it requires 55 degrees in order to germinate properly in order for it to germinate at 95%. And then we have to water it at least once every day, if mm -hmm. not twice a day, depending on the humidity, depending on the temperature. And then 21 days later, we, we transplant it out. If we wait too long, then we can't transplant it out because it's become root bound and it won't grow up to be a, a full lettuce, but then we protect it from the sun or we protect it, protect it from the elements. We protect it from the air or the, the hail rather. Then we finally get to the, the harvest window and we harvest it. We, we usually during the morning, because if it's too hot outside, it can will and not rehydrate. We hydro cool it. We, we uh, store it at 99% humidity mm -hmm. between 37 and 40 degrees Celsius. We make sure that the, the cold, uh, the, the cold train from, uh, once we hydrocool it to getting to the consumer is, is not broken. And then we finally go to the farmer's market and somebody complains about the spot being on the lettuce. And it's like, <laughs> you fucking idiots. Like, do you know how much effort went? Like this the lettuce has been alive for 90 days since I seeded it. And you're complaining about one Crespora leaf spot or whatever that's, that's on my produce. And it's like, you, you don't have any basis and understanding of what living things how much energy and, and effort it takes to, to raise perishable goods so that you can then use that energy to make stock trades or drive down the road or talk bullshit with your friend. It's like, that was that is what food is, is we're redistributing or reallocating certain energy from the sun, storing it in carbohydrates and proteins, and then giving it to you for $3. <laughs> Get a grip. So re-educating the public too yeah. on the true cost of food, mm -hmm. which with subsidies over decades, nobody knows what the real cost of food is. Mm -hmm. So when you're at your cafe saying, hey, this sandwich is $15, what, $15 for a sandwich? And that's actually pretty much the average price for a sandwich these days, regardless mm -hmm. of where that meat or that produce on that sandwich came from. Yeah. But just reshaping that expectation of what's on it, the value of it, the effort put into it. And yeah, that's what it costs. It does. And, and what you just broke down, you know, we also have to appreciate farmers. Yeah. Um, I mean, because what you just, <laughs> you know, rattled off there, it's like, wow, you know, people don't know what goes into farming nowadays. Yeah. I mean, and then to be able to make a living off of that mm -hmm. is not easy and we don't get paid when we're growing when we're growing all that stuff we only mm -hmm. get paid once we harvest it and if we can sell it mm -hmm. like that's yeah. the only time we get a paycheck right as opposed to say if you're you know for an, an engineer and you're getting paid a salary it's like you might spend four years on a project imagine if you had to wait four years to get a paycheck and if that project didn't pan out you didn't get paid i mean that's what farmers have to deal with yeah, that's a great example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tough world out there. I'll tell you, it's a little upside <laughs> it's, down. It's tough. And like coming back to like the culinary aspect of it, right? It's like we would, you know, we would receive really amazing produce and ingredients and things to construct these cuisines from. And, and that was amazing. And for me, it's like, oh, wow, you know, this is... Uh, 
Yeah, it's like that. I think it was like that that time when we were in Italy. Like it really kind of hit me. We were at this Italian restaurant in Naples, and um, we were there during lunch, and then after lunch, actually, we were after, there at three. Yeah, after lunch, and then this this farmer walks in, and he brings in all of his zucchini blossoms, mm-hmm. and then he sits down in the corner, and then the owner of the restaurant he was mingling with us, but then he goes over and tends to the farmer and gives him a meal. It's like you know, in certain cultures, people really understand and appreciate mm-hmm. what farmers do because mm. we don't have those cu- cuisines. We don't have our restaurant unless we have farmers doing the very hard and noble work of producing amazing uh, products. Yeah. Mm. Amazing looking, amazing tasting. tasting and um, healthy. That still has life force right. vitality. And, yeah. You know. Which is not the norm. You know, and you're not only being farmers, you're choosing to do it the most difficult way to have the most amazing outcome that you have to teach people to appreciate, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's especially difficult. And, and then another thing about consumption, you're delivering all that to a restaurant and this is the thing that kills me. You'll put all that effort into making this incredible plate using the most beautiful microgreens from Jay and Ashley and the beautiful you know, sauce of this or that and the other thing. And, you know, some people are really just there to consume it with their pocketbook mm-hmm. and their esteem and they don't finish the damn plate. Oh my God. Of that food. And me. I have to throw it away and I can't wrap my head around it because I know what went into it. Mm-hmm. The scallop coming from wherever it came from, the microgreens, the cherry blossom, the whatever. It's just, it just kills me. And that's not everybody. Most of us, most people we know would say, oh, I'm going to finish this plate. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But at the high cuisine level, there is that, you know, $500 per person sushi mm-hmm. sit down and they're just talking about whatever and not paying attention to what mm. the chef is putting in front yeah. of them, waiting for their reaction. They're not finishing their bread of sushi. They're not paying attention to the flavors they're not truly consuming it mm-hmm. or enjoying it and that's that's what it comes down to um you know why we're in this business you know yeah ultimately is is to share joy mm-hmm. you know it i it, it brings me a lot of um satisfaction to know that i've created something with wholesome ingredients that brought someone not only nourishment but joy in that matter where you can just sort of forget mm-hmm. or transcend mm-hmm. and um, just enjoy you know the magic of life in that moment it is it, magic mm-hmm. it it's is. alchemy it is yeah it is alchemy in a way yeah like I mean think about a scallop meal with with um, squash blossoms and um, a certain reduction um it's like if say there's like 40 ingredients that go into meal and it comes from around the world like all of those things had to work in this beautiful symphony and come to fruition to be harvested or um um, slaughtered or whatever and then all of this works together and it goes through the back of house perfectly and we have all these masters back there perfectly like synchronizing all of our different taste but or all of our different tastes into this one symphony really mm-hmm. and it's presented to you and 
no, no one even says like thank you and just like starts blabbering to their friend about how they lost four million dollars on a trade or some mm-hmm. bullshit. It's like you have this opportunity to to really appreciate what was put in front of you, and that's where joy comes from for mm-hmm. me. It's like if you can really appreciate and like truly understand the 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 history and the story behind a single meal is when where I feel joy. I don't go to Subway and be like, well, that was like a joyous meal, like. Mm-hmm. You know, if we go to a, a, even it doesn't have to be a high-end restaurant, but it just has to be a restaurant where I guess the people have a, like a real true mission on, on to bring mm-hmm. bring the joy mm-hmm. to the people. And and I guess that's where I find yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dishes are like created with intention to bring people. Yeah. To bring people energy through their food and happiness through a meal. And I think sadly that... It makes me so sad <laughs> just even thinking about that concept of people not finishing a plate or even acknowledging a plate of food that was prepared for them with so much intention. And I think it's in part like a disconnect between humanity and our food. And you see it in, in the grocery store too. Like there there are people out there who have never seen anything but boneless skinless chicken breasts <laughs> in a plastic package mm-hmm. right. and and they couldn't ever imagine slaughtering or killing their own chickens or hunting and providing their family with meat for an entire winter because they got an elk but they'll go to the grocery store and buy this shitty water injected pork chop yeah because that's what they know as meat and it's it's a true disconnect from where our food comes from and i wonder if part of um part of that state of mind where you pay for a meal and you gobble it down without thinking about it or don't finish it and throw it out without having any thought is just that disconnect and not having consideration of what went into this meal whereas i mean this is part of the beauty and fortune of knowing you two and getting to know you over the past three years is that we can share a meal and I have so much appreciation for all the energy that goes into making it the contribution that we can make by providing our vegetables but then just seeing everyone's reactions in in truly like feeling what you're getting from that food and talking about like the energy coming from our greens Mm. and just the thought that goes into combinations of flavors uh, and we can sit down and enjoy it and why society as a whole has drifted away from that and or doesn't want to like regain that consciousness around food I don't know but it's I'm grateful that we have it us too or me too yeah I'm really grateful that we met you two like first of all the I knew I was passionate about food but like having some of your meals around me for real, like you're a true master when it comes to combining different flavor oh, flavors. Wow, it's you. like for real. I wish everyone out there could actually just experience a meal of yours. Like you can take some mm-hmm. just seemingly ordinary ingredients, like even just that hakurai with mm-hmm. the, and then you made that hakurais are these white salad turnips. They were actually, um, they were, uh, they were bred post in Japan, post world war two because they had a huge famine and they needed a really, really quick growing turnip to help feed the, feed the citizens and hence Hakurai came about. And it takes 38 days for that, for that turnip to reach maturity and it's you know 25 days um, quicker than, than most turnips out there. 
but you took this really just mm. humble turn up. Like when people <laughs> think of turn up, you're like, oh, right. But I mean, it really is a delicious vegetable and you slice them just real simply use those greens. And what else did you put in that, that green sauce? If I you don't forget. remember what dish this is. Yeah. yeah. Oh. But it was like, it was a little like, what's the term? Aperitif or like a little like appetizer, yeah. if you will. Was that the radish? Yeah. There was like the radish sauce. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, there was a sauce. I with forget it. what exactly, oh, but it was Regardless, like. Regardless, it was so simple. It was the hakarai cut in half with their little little bit of the top still on it. Yeah. And you had sauteed them lightly or grilled them slightly. Mm-hmm. And it was made... just perfection. Wow, mm-hmm. I just have no recollection. That's of hilarious. That. <laughs> yeah. But, but he's a magician has... of the moment, yeah. and that's yeah. and that's just it. And yeah. so you're willing participants in Rami's magic show mm-hmm. when he's making something like that. You know, yeah. I'm a willing participant in your uh, farmer production show, a willing participant in your bakery show. And you know, what we we master these areas with our audience who's willing to come to the show and mm. they want to be entertained. That's that's who we want to serve, yeah. right? But can we, the next level of mastery is imposing that magicianship on people who aren't even paying attention. Mm-hmm. So can you make someone who comes into the restaurant, drops $500, isn't paying attention to what they're eating or tasting it, can their first bite make them transformed? It's like in ratatouille, mm-hmm. you know. Ratatouille, <laughs> like water for chocolate, yeah. chocolat. Um, the menu is a movie that just came out, you know, with Ray Fiennes, where he's got these very strict rules about what you can and can't do at the table. You know, which is I feel like how we would be if I we re- ever. I related <laughs> to that character in so many different ways. But there's a lot of great food films out there um, that I really kind of inspired me too there's Babette's Feast there's Tampopo which is one of my all-time favorite films food film it's a film from Japan I believe 1985 yeah I would love for you guys to come by and watch that we I still need to do yeah, that yeah you need to come do it um there's a lot of really good f- informative films that get into the whole sort of gastronomic philosophy that we meant that we don't have in our society and culture mm-hmm. Going back to, you asked me where I was born, you know, I was born in Cambodia at a mm-hmm. time when, you know, famine took over that country. Oh, yeah. And, you know, e- even in this country, the last time that we've gone through that, I think, was the Great Depression. And mm-hmm. my grandmother would talk about those years on what it, you know, you know having a respect and reverence for food mm-hmm. of any kind. Because we, we, we have taken it for granted on so many levels in our society that we, we've forgotten where it comes from. Where we're happy with Chef Boyardee and mm-hmm. Top Ramen Noodles and people think that's food. Yeah. And it's not. So in a way, we've been programmed, but also, um, you know... For, you know, we, we've succumbed to the convenience of the convenience industry of food and the long preparation of meals we don't have. You go into Italy, it's like someone's taking the time to, to prepare a meal and it takes all day. And there's 
someone's grandmother is doing especially. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. hand rolling orzo. Yeah. <laughs> People don't even realize it's like orzo is hand rolled traditionally. Wow. wow. Right? Like, traditionally. Yeah. Little beads. I've takes ne- all day. I've never done that. Yeah, I me neither. I have the patience for that. <laughs> yeah. But there are people that are doing very tedious, monotonous things that you will take in one bite and not even know like mm-hmm. what went behind that. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's it going to take for our country a society to come back to that i don't know i think it's gonna probably i don't think it's gonna be something a a transcendental thing i think it's gonna take something um very detrimental to happen in society yeah Yeah, like where you know food supply all of a sudden is diminished Mm -hmm. you know living in hawaii you know, Hawaii at any given time, if distribution stopped, if the, oh if the shipping containers didn't come, uh, Hawaii only has one week of food to feed everyone in the islands. Forget about toilet paper. Yeah. <laughs> There's I mean, a quote, I forget who said it, but we're, th- we're always three days away from anarchy because, or we're three days away from complete anarchy. I forget who said that, but it was basically because supermarkets basically have about three days supply of food yeah and what happens three days later all of a sudden say like uh um some solar flares hit our our instruments like many things will happen but the distribution of all of our food is gonna it's gonna be gone all of a sudden sorry and like what do you do then like it was gonna be a complete rapture i yeah. mean hell on earth yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. You don't even need solar flares. I mean, mm-hmm. as we saw, like during the pandemic, it, 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 you you just what 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 we what we are what we're dependent upon our systems, and we don't realize that we're dependent upon systems, and these systems can break down, and when the one system breaks down, another system breaks down. Mm-hmm. So when there is a a system, for example, a system in distribution that breaks down, it's going to affect um, uh, all of those um, connector points, especially mm-hmm. if it's food distribution. What if it was fuel distribution, mm-hmm. which we, we, we kind of saw some of that. Mm-hmm. You know, what if there what if there was no diesel fuel? You know, all of these shipping containers and trucks trucks or are not are not going to be able to ship food to places where um society needs it then what then that's when people finally turn back to their farmers and show appreciation and respect or they get their guns and they come to the farm and take it over exactly yeah that's the first thing that happens unfortunately yeah Yeah. i mean when we were in hawaii we were talking about that because we were there in 2018 i think and talking to indigenous Hawaiians about that idea. There's only one week of food left. Mm -hmm. But the number of people that are on the Hawaiian Islands today were supported by taro, which makes poi, and aquaculture for fish entirely, happily, healthfully. The same number of the same population Mm -hmm. at its height, at the height of... In what we call indigenous or just native peoples of Hawaii, people who first populated those islands, they were sustained by taro and aquaculture. But you can't just pop up some taro and net some fish when the ships don't show up with food. Right. So What's taro? Taro is that uh, it's it's like cassava. It's like a, it's a root vegetable of. It, it turns out it's Indonesia, 
uh, Southeast Asia uh, and all through Polynesia, and then they make that purple poi paste out of it. So it's a staple carbohydrate-resistant okay. starch. Okay. Uh, with fish and poi and some taro greens, it's pretty much all you need. Complete. You can live on mm-hmm. that happily for life and yeah. get nice and fat and yeah. shiny, yeah. even mm-hmm. on that. That's good so. stuff. Interesting. I'll have to look into that. I've never yeah. heard taro. Have nice you? and fat and shiny is a positive root. thing, actually, ayurvedically and in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. said nice and shiny and fat? Yeah. It's a, good, it's a positive thing. Um, which actually, that's a great segue because I wanted to find a way to get back to you, Amber, and your history a little bit mm-hmm. because you have such a broad knowledge in health, wellness, nutrition, cannabis use in a medicinal way, Ayurvedic medicine. Um and I don't actually know your full history of how you got to this place in in your, I guess, uh, medicinal journey in health and wellness. Um, but you were a massage therapist at one point, correct? And move forward from there. But if you could maybe start around that time or what, what guided you to leave that industry and move more into the Ayurvedic medicine and your current studies for um, your nutrition certification here in Montana. Yeah, I think a lot like Rami, you know, there were things that informed me as a child. You know, I was very fascinated early on, like Rami was, about food and combining foods together. For me, it was about health. So when we were taught uh, in elementary school, the four food groups, and they had various ways of teaching that, mm-hmm. I was just fascinated. I was like, oh, it's a formula. I've got these four categories, and I can put these foods in this one, and these foods in that one, and a pizza has everything. But then I was like, but that doesn't really make sense, because I know pizza isn't a health food. So how is a pizza healthy <laughs> just because it has all four food groups? So I think the combination of being taught that and then contemplating how does that really apply in our life. I was always fascinated with nutrition. I went down other paths in college simply because society didn't tell me that I could make a living or a career out of being a nutritionist. They're wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it took me a while to get back to it. Um, And then I I studied nutrition and massage therapy kind of at the same time, simultaneously. It's just that there are a lot more people willing to come have their body rubbed with oil Mm -hmm. than willing to change the way they eat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so most (laughs) of the time I... (laughs) Most of the time I did both at the same time. You know, yeah, yeah. oh, I'm gonna rub your body with oil. Oh, I'm so fat. I'm overweight. I'm, you know, I should come to you for nutrition. Yeah, well, you'll get there when you're ready, you yeah. know. <laughs> and for me, it was always about uh, trying to find a more compelling truth. And so what was the truth that I learned about nutrition? Try that on. How did that work? Okay, I'll go fat-free for two years. Hmm, lose my hair, lose my skin luster, you know, lose my microbiome, you know, experience that and say, well, that wasn't the truth. Okay, what is the truth? Keep looking for that. And and so for me to come to Ayurveda, I just knew it when I heard it. I just knew that while it might not be the only truth, it's a pretty good summation of tools that can lead you to health, but it leads you to health through appreciation of who you already are mm-hmm. and yeah. coming to accept your strengths and recognize your weaknesses and, you know, m- meld them together to um, have a long and healthy life for whatever reason you need that. 
you know? And so the idea, the hope was that you're healthy and have a long enough life that you can actually realize some of the truths about life. Um, not everybody will do that. Mm -hmm. So for me, Ayurveda is really foundational to massage therapy. It's foundation to yoga. It's foundational to physical therapy. It's foundation to exercise. It's foundational to the career path that you choose, to the way that you interact with people. It's definitely foundational to nutrition, but not in the way that people might think. You know, oh, I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner. Oh, so you're vegan. No, you know, well, why not? Well, why would you think that that's vegan? You know, so it's just these preconceived notions of what it is meant to be, what it really is, what its full potential is. And and so for me, it plays out more. I'm, I'm not, people are always like, oh, I, I want you to make me a meal plan and add up all my calories and tell me how much of what I'm supposed to eat every day. And I hate that. I do not like doing that. Not for myself, not for anybody else. I feel if we can teach people to appreciate, just like we're talking about with agriculture, with the culinary arts, if we teach people to appreciate what good health can feel like, they will learn to listen to their own body's needs and identify what they need. Um, so it's about teaching self-belief, self-reliance, trusting in your own intuition. Mm -hmm. So it's much less of a way to teach nutrition anymore or give somebody a food plan than it is to, really it's about teaching them to love themselves mm -hmm. and love the very strong aspects of themselves, recognize and love the weak aspects of themselves enough to help support them and build them up. It's become something entirely different than, you know, the way that I've navigated my life making a living employing that. I used to make food plans like, okay, your blood typo and your pitta kapha, I'm going to put all this together in a salad bowl, mix it up and give you a diet plan for mm -hmm. your blood type your dosha, your constitution in Ayurveda, you know, if you run hot or cold or moist or dry, and we'll fix all your problems by adding these things up mathematically. And, and people don't follow that. It's too hard. It's, it's not about willpower. It's that you still don't feel seen. You still don't feel recognized. And that's, First the, essence yourself. Of, that's the essence of finding truth. It's like, People want to externalize the responsibility of finding truth onto other people. And really, you just have to realize it inside yourself. And mm -hmm. like your health, like everybody else, is going to be a little bit different from the person next to you. And it's like, okay, I, I don't want to have any responsibility in finding the truth. I want you to make the meal plan for me so I can just follow it. But then you don't appreciate the the, the work that one needs to, to or you, you don't appreciate the meal plan that's given to you because you didn't really produce it. It's like you didn't have the energy. You didn't put the effort into realizing that most of those answers are just within yourself. Absolutely. And then we externalize further by saying, well, I could look like Jennifer Lopez too. If I had a private chef making mm. juices and raw meals for me all day long, <laughs> you know, but even JLo and other celebrities have their down seasons because if they don't love themselves, they'll, get unhealthy for a while until they have to get healthy for an externalized reason. Mm -hmm. How do we find true health emanating from within ourselves? I want to wake up in the morning, feel energized, not be in pain, 
feel a bright disposition, uh, optimism and hope, a clear mind. So what do I need to do to experience that? And I want other people to want that in the morning too. Mm -hmm. Enough that at night we make conscious choices about how much wine or beer we're going to drink, how much cannabis we're going to smoke or not smoke, or, you know, maybe some people need more and some people need none. You know, Mm -hmm. we have to find what works for us, not for the person sitting next to you. Mm -hmm. You know, and in a relationship, we each have our own ways. There are things that we share and that we have in common that help us to feel the most balanced, but we have to recognize that for each of us, it's different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I dropped the mic. Sorry. No, you're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, when you just say things, we have to think about it for a second. And that was a lot to process for me. So no, I appreciate that. So, all right. So you were, when did you like you, like, when did you first come across Ayurvedic medicine? Did you, when you first came across it, it's a two-pronged question. When did you first come across it? And in that first um, uh, encounter? encounter, thank you, did you listen? Did you did it take a number of times in order to actually be like, well, maybe this is a pursuit of mine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and to recount that, it's not a linear... Uh, it, it wasn't a linear introduction to Ayurveda. Yeah. It very much intertwined and circled back on itself so where I remember first being introduced to the concept and books on it was my first job as a massage therapist which I was given by a woman who started a small spa in Healdsburg California and I had I had just started massage school and she's like eh I don't care if you have a license I'll teach you everything I want you to know so just come show up she she felt me she believed in me Mm -hmm. and and I'm very grateful to her for that and the things she taught me most importantly, she exposed me to that there is a medicine and a medical practice out there called Ayurveda. And that I started to look at that. And just like the four food groups, I was like, oh, it's formulaic. How fascinating. I can (laughs) do mathematics with this and come out with perfect health, you know? And so you start experimenting because it's sort of cerebral, but I felt it already. I already was like, wow, this feels like something really deep. Mm And then it wasn't, so that was 1996, and then it wasn't until 2002 that I actually went to school to study Ayurveda with a teacher of Ayurvedic medicine, a practitioner of Ayurvedic medicine. And, you know, one of the first things she said when we were all sitting like good students at our little desks was, if you are here to learn Ayurvedic medicine from me, you're here to remember because you've known it before and you're being drawn back to it. I'm here to guide you. I'll be your teacher, but you've already done this before or you wouldn't be interested in this. And that resonated so strongly. And then as she started to teach and some of the history started to come out of the, the, the part of the world where it evolved, which is the Indus River Valley, and words like Mohenjo-Daro and Harappa came up, now I was propelled back to you know, history class when I was in school learning about the Mohenjo-Daro and Harappan cultures in the Indus River Valley just after learning about Mesopotamia, Mm -hmm. you know, but very brief little mention. But I remember that as a kid. I've asked so many people, do you remember Mohenjo-Daro and Harappan? Nope, I don't remember. I remembered it. 
So why did it resonate with me so much, even to think about these cultures, these abandoned cities with perfect rectilinear design, pre-planned cities, amazing sewage systems, water distribution system, public baths, hierarchy of the city, you know, agriculture surrounding, like, who were these people? Where did they go? How did they get there? Where did they come from? Right, right. Dumb hunter-gatherers just (laughs) built perfect bricks that are still being used, you know, today, being repurposed and Mm -hmm. haven't broken apart. Like, this was, that, that was literally three to 5,000 years ago. Now we know it went back even further. We're talking literally measurable 9,000 years ago. Probable things we've not funded the digging up of even further back than yeah. that is are the people who in whom Ayurveda became a concrete body of knowledge the oldest known humans on this planet absolutely not but something that we can still see that we can dig up that we can identify that we can carbon date that we can use all these other methods to say hey these were just people like you and I today mm-hmm. they had just compiled a very um, comprehensive body of knowledge. Now for me with Ayurveda, it's I'm putting together with all the stuff that I'm reading about uh, archaeology, paleochemistry, uh, geology. All of these things together are helping us understand more about human history as we can see it for what's left, mm-hmm. what's identifiable, and doesn't just look like a, a, a hill of dirt, um, I'm realizing that what we see of Ayurveda, or anything for that matter, the Egyptian culture, uh, the, the Angkor Wat in Cambodia, you know, the pyramids we're finally realizing are in the rainforests of the Amazon. Mm-hmm. These are the last vestiges of something that was way more evolved Mm -hmm. than we are today and ayurveda as a body of knowledge as esoteric as it is as comprehensive as it is as academic as it became is just a vestige of what humans once understood experienced and imparted to one another Mm -hmm. yeah i wonder what was burning the the uh, library of alexandria (laughs) or if it ever got burned Oh, yeah? I mean, yeah. Or, or, or I, for, I mean, that could be the story we're told when re, in reality, a lot of those things that supposedly got burned. Or, just in the Catholic Church. Or somewhere in the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> Very likely. I mean, there are secret libraries in the Vatican that no one even knows about. There's a library in the Vatican, but there are other libraries that, I mean, you... People don't even know about these things. Yeah. All of this knowledge of humanity just being sequestered and uh, or out here floundering. <laughs> it feels that way because, like, when you when you're born, you know, you don't, you know, if people be- believe in in reincarnation and past lives, which I do, um, there's a great forgetting that happens when you come into this new new life form, this new life, and you have to really. I mean, you have innate behaviors that are passed down from from generation to generation, but then there's you have all this learned behavior and learned understanding of how to view the world, and that's a great example. Like I just perpetuated this idea that the Library of Alexandria was burned, and I don't truly know. I read it somewhere, mm-hmm. but I I don't remember being there. Mm-hmm. So, 
but yeah. that, that goes for, for nutrition and for health as well. Nowadays, we, we believe that science is going to solve all of our problems and that technology is going to solve all of our health issues. Now it's these algae that are genetically engineered to produce oils because canola oil is bad for you. And it's like, this is the answer. We always have these marketable answers for health. Whereas health is, again, it's something that comes from within. It's like you can eat all of the perfect foods, but if you are just even in dysbiosis and you're not able to process that food, it doesn't matter if you eat them or not. You're not going to, you're going to be malnourished. Or if you're spending so much time making yourself feel guilty or stressed mm -hmm. about what you feel you must consume. I must eat so all true. the salads with the grains and the complete proteins. And if I cheat once and have a cookie, I should feel really bad about it. And just like that negative energy that's created, it can manifest in a way in which the perfectly healthy person, they're fit, they exercise, they eat the best diet, they hardly ever eat sugar, they can still end up with disease mm -hmm. and will feel it's so mm -hmm. unfair. But I worked so hard. I tried so hard. I, I ate the so best much. food. I gave up so much. I felt guilty if I did eat ice cream. It's like, well, maybe that's where it's coming from. Maybe that's where that dis-ease disease Mm -hmm. comes out of is just not is just that that place of guilt and shame around your choices and the food you eat rather and i'm not saying that people should go out and be like i intuitively <laughs> feel like i should eat ice cream and only Every eat day. ice cream but to really listen to your body and what you need because i think intuitively we do have a sense of what nourishment we need on certain days at certain times of the month in certain periods of our lives more than others from spring into summer and summer into fall and winter. There are transitions in our dietary needs, um, but to have that shame or guilt around what you eat can manifest itself in such a negative way in your body, no matter how healthy you're trying to be. Mm. Definitely. That kind of segues back into when you guys were over and we were talking about self-compassion. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just something, a subject that I've just been contemplating a lot. And it's like, yeah, you can have all of these healthy things and all of these, but if you don't have a healthy attitude about your own being and, and you know, asking those existential questions for yourself and, and not necessarily relying on, um, someone to answer it for mm -hmm. you and um, you know having that self-compassion allows you to absorb those nutrients in a, in a way or to absorb the guilt the uh, absorb the shame in a way because it never goes away if we just forget that it's there it's still going to be there and so giving ourselves um, more compassion mm -hmm. allows us to, you know, be a better farmer, be a better, you know, husband, wife, father. Mm -hmm. It's a very difficult thing. You know, it's a very, very difficult thing. So, and we were just talking about this. Amber and I were, were talking about this the other day. Like, what is compassion? Is it, is it, you know, involve pity? It's not self-pity. Like, self-compassion is actually very, very hard. Self-compassion is actually showing up at the yoga mat and going through it and forcing yourself to go through it. That's really what I mean by self-compassion as well, because 
you have to accept the fact that we have taken on all of these bad habits or bad thoughts and it has created us to act in a way that that's not in our best interest and um we have to unravel that and it's not easy (laughs) no it's really hard Mm -hmm. it's really hard to to take a look at your shadow and Mm -hmm. so this is like this is this idea is kind of based in joseph campbell's work if you're familiar with him so i mean he went around to numerous numerous cultures around the world and studied religions for 35 40 years and then he wrote the hero's journey and the Mm -hmm. hero's journey is this idea that when we're born we essentially become the orphan at you know first i think it is right and then some people as they grow up they they never they never go into these different stages of life and so this life all of our lives have this arc um to them and you start as somebody um who can't fend for themselves who need their mother and father a guardian and then you start to go through into adolescence and early adulthood and you're not you're not really realizing where you're going and and the orphan is the person who is woe is me uh it's always the other's fault it's never my own responsibility for my health it's it's somebody else's job to provide for me and to solve my problems when really what you should be doing at that point in time is going out there and being like well what is a problem that i see in this world it's a call to arms and that's when you become a hero. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, it's like the classic King Arthur. It's like he was an orphan and he was blaming every everybody else for their, his problems. Or just like um, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. It's all the same exact story. And that's what Joseph Campbell found is that the same stories were being reproduced in just different ways. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter who the character was. They had to go and slay the, uh, pers- uh, what's the word, um, the uh, the dragon. And then protect, you know, it's a, it's basically, it's a, it's a story where you are called to do something greater than yourself. Right. And when you go and slay that, that, um, that dragon and you come back and you're the hero for the, the community, that's when you realize that life is not about, uh, telling yourself that it's that, or how should I say this? Life is, is not about not being responsible. It's about being responsible for not just you, but also for the entire civilization around you Mm -hmm. and there's a butterfly effect that happens yeah Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to get back to though like um where this dis-ease comes from and and where these motivations come from to consume food and we're, we're really starting to realize that this brain gut connection you know through what is the vagus nerve Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. through the vagus nerve and and just how how important our gut microbiome is the health of our microbiome from what I can, from what I can understand, is ex- one of the most exclusive or the most predominant aspects of health. Ninety percent of the dopamine that is produced in your body is produced in your gut. Ninety or fifty percent or so of the serotonin that you that is going coursing through your veins is produced by the gut. And the way I look at 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 humans now, I used to just think of them as primates, but now I'm I'm starting to look at humans as think of like an amoeba. And the amoeba envelops something, right? It, it consumes another cell and then either eats them or it becomes a mitochondria. Mitochondria actually used to be Bacteria. life forms. Yeah, they used to be life forms of themselves, right? Like I think they were a, a prokaryotic cell 
beforehand, and a cell enveloped them, I think, and became a eukaryotic. I think that's the something difference. Like something that. like that. Yeah. I'm probably wrong. But then, you know, play that out over millions of years, and we keep on adding complexity to the system, and pretty soon, all of a sudden, humans are in this way, they're, they're this manifestation of soil. And what I mean by that is all the bacteria, or many of the bacteria that you find in your gut are actually the same exact bacteria that are found in healthy soils. And the way I look at it is all these little microbes with all these little joysticks are like, are, are manipulating you and motivating you or depressing you or, um, you know, making you randy or all these various aspects of how, what we feel. And we think that it's us, but it's not necessarily right. us. It's really these bacteria that are are also brilliant chemists and can produce these various compounds that manipulate other aspects of our body, like our brain, where conscious thought potentially arises. I love this because, I mean, wasn't I just talking about this the other mm -hmm. night? And I just, this is why I love Jay and Ashley from mm -hmm. the very first moment I met them at the <laughs> farmer's market, <laughs> speaking my language. Um, yeah, I mean, first question is, well, first let's define a few things. Yeah. Okay. Microbiome is, it can be the collection of mostly bacteria or yeast, but any single-celled microorganism that lives in a certain environment. So human microbiome means those that live in or on humans. Soil mm -hmm. microbiome, those that live in the soil. Mm -hmm. There's an atmospheric microbiome. There's an ocean microbiome. And there are micro-microbiomes, so microbiota, in various areas. So you have a microbiota of your ear canal, your nasal passages, your armpit, mm -hmm. compared to your large intestine, your small intestine, your stomach, your mouth. And so... And these, these are so disparate sometimes that the analogy that I heard from a scientist who studies the microbiome of, of, of essentially of infants during pregnancy and post-pregnancy, he was like, the microbiome of your of your armpits versus the microbiome of your skin could be as different and probably is as different as between a desert and a rainforest. Wow. That's how different it is. Absolutely. Wow. And and so just like your garden or weeds, like there's a place for each of them. That the the good one in your armpit is bad if it's on your knee, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the good one in your large intestine is bad if it's in your small intestine even. So where are they supposed to be? Are they in the right place? And then you use this term earlier, dysbiosis, is when it's not the right organisms or they're not in the right place or certain of them are outnumbering. Mm -hmm. And uh, eubiosis, E-U-B-I-O-S-I-S, -I -I is an idea of normal or healthy biome. And that can vary person to person. Now, couples who live together, families who live together, tend to have microbiomes that are fairly similar. Even your dog and you start to have somewhat similar microbiomes. But what you said about the soil, Jay, I mean, this is one of those things that's just as mind-blowing and miraculous to me as the fact that plants take photons and CO2 and make matter. Yeah. Like These are daily miracles that we're witnessing that we have no awareness of. And if we did we certainly wouldn't go to work anymore. We'd just sit in awe right. and watch them happening, you know. To I'm like, I tell people, it is not an analogy. I'm not making a metaphor to say that the microbes in the soil 
are the microbes in your gut. They're really the same ones. Yeah. Like the bacillus organisms in the soil, without them, the minerals, the nutrients in the soil don't get into the plant. The plant doesn't grow. Yeah. Those same organisms at your gut lining, your food, it doesn't get translated. It doesn't get into your bloodstream. It doesn't get into your cells. You don't become. You don't grow. And so then the question to me is, are these microorganisms sentient? Do they have a soul, a life's purpose? Do they go on the hero's journey? Yeah. You know, or are they just methodically um, like a computer program going through the motions of mm-hmm. self replication, self-preservation, and it just so happens that you've engulfed a number of microorganisms that are all rowing in the same direction of (laughs) self-preservation as you. But it's an amazing way to generate Mm self-compassion for people when you can make them aware that their choices are not their own. No longer do we berate people and you're a nutritionist, Ashley, and I'm a nutritionist, we can't berate people and say, well, if you would just consume fewer calories than you Mm -hmm. ate, you wouldn't be so overweight. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of willpower. Exert some willpower. You know, take Mm -hmm. some initiative. You can do this. You know, I'm going to write it out for you one more time. We can't be like that anymore. I used to take things out of people's diets. Now I add things. I don't eliminate anything. Mm -hmm. I say, how about we add one good thing? Because what we have to do first is change the messaging from the gut to the brain, and that requires an intercept. If you're in a position to intercept with high-quality food, with a hug, with an education about your microgreens, with a supplement, even a very uh, chemically laboratory-made supplement, you can at least intercept that messaging to where that person might have a chance Mm -hmm. of generating one moment a day of self-compassion, making one better choice a day where they can point to that or their friend or their family member can say, no, you, you had that moment yesterday when you were not melancholy and depressed and wanting to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. You had a moment mm-hmm. of self-love. Dysmorphia, I, we have teenagers, teenage girl. Uh. How can she look in the mirror and say, oh my God, I'm so ugly today. I don't even want to go to school and be late to school trying to change that. And yet this is common. We, we just listened to Jordan Peterson talking as a psychologist about how common this is among teenagers. It's a common stage that happens from hormones. Hormones happen from microbiome. Mm-hmm. You know, how are these all interrelated? And then a whole life can be, if a 12-year-old has dysmorphia, which meaning they don't like their body, mm-hmm. they, don't, they have, a, they have a, a faulty perception of how they look to themselves and to others, and then they start changing their diet, not eating, eating certain things, exercising, over-exercising, not exercising, applying a lot of makeup. They get depressed. They go to the doctor. They get put on an antidepressant. This alters the microbiome because of the dopamine and serotonin that you were just talking about. They'll never get back normality. Mm -hmm. They will just have to find a new normal, a new balance point. And so you, you see children started on these things at 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. They're not even anywhere near being at a balanced place hormonally, nobody's looking at their diet. Nobody's looking at the air they're breathing and the water that they're drinking, Mm -hmm. the clothing they're wearing, the cosmetics they're applying, you know, the detergent their parents are using to wash their clothes. Mm -hmm. The thoughts they're perpetuating. The thoughts they're perpetuating is all affecting it. I have to keep going on one little thing because this blew my mind. When you say thoughts that you're perpetuating and it ties to Rami, what you were saying earlier how we think affects what we present. And 
the studies on uh, people with multiple personality disorder are mind-blowing. And, and, and no person with multiple person in personality disorder says, gosh, I, ha- I feel like I was 12 different people yesterday. I'm going to go see a psychologist. They go because they have amnesia. There are gaps in their recollection, and they wind up in a dentist's office not knowing why they're there or what's getting done because a different personality got them there. And so they're like, okay, so I'm going to go get help. Then the psychologists start breaking it down. Then they're fascinating subjects, so they start writing a book on it so they can get published and be famous. But what they've there are documented cases of one personality having diabetes and taking Mm -hmm. medication for it and when the next personality takes over, they could go get blood tests and they won't have diabetes and they won't take that medication. That's crazy. One personality takes an antidepressant, the other one doesn't. One person, one personality has a mole on their cheek and the other one doesn't. What do you mean by that? The mole will appear and disappear. Really? Documented when the personality changes. That's fascinating. That's crazy. Yeah. Eye colors how- will change in a moment when the next personality comes in to that body. Mm. So this actually ties back to things that aren't written down in Ayurveda but are alluded to, mm-hmm. which is how with a thought we can actually change the physical manifestation that we see ourselves in the mirror and that other people see. And what we focus on is what we become. And what we focus on is what we attract. And so it's not just a bunch of like new age gibberish. Right. There's there's real examples even today of the incredible power of our mind should we be able to learn to master that that's that's fascinating yeah. you know this goes back to you know talking about gastronomic philosophy we we, we we we've we've all heard this you are what you eat mm-hmm. right but you know as we go deeper into the mystery of our being as what amber is alluding to it's like you really are what you think mm-hmm and so we have to learn how to think. We've never been taught how to think. You know, and I think that's some of these things that could be hidden in these libraries. It's like, mm-hmm. how do we take consciousness and and be conscious of it, number one, yeah. and think properly so that we can manifest our optimum self mm-hmm. in society henceforth. Wouldn't that be amazing if like we had come over here today and you were like, Amber, you chose to be blue skinned today. That's so cool. What what did you do to be that? And it wasn't weird. It was just like, no, I just felt like being blue today. And oh, you you decided actually to have curly hair today. How did you do that? Did you use a curling wand? No, I just woke up and pictured curly hair today and I was feeling rather bodacious so I put on some weight this morning or you know I have to run later so I got really lean I mean this is supposedly something we we really have the power to do what we can first hope to accomplish and that's kind of a tall order for one podcast but what we can hope to accomplish is change the way that we think because it certainly does affect the microbiome within us your efforts in soil in and outside of your greenhouse, both your efforts in the cafe, your efforts not to choke someone at the farmer's market when they point out a spot <laughs> on the lettuce, all of these things and choose to educate instead. Yeah. It, you know, these all have an effect on the outcome through these microorganisms that live in us and on us. Mm-hmm. And we are 
90 something percent water. They are moving in that medium. We've all heard about the water crystallization experiments, you know, and applying negative intention versus a positive intention to water, seeing how it crystallizes Mm -hmm. differently, seeing how we can cleanse it. You know, so when we talk about a world where we have to grow algae to make meat or grow Mm -hmm. algae to make oils, I I pause and I'm like, do I even want to be here for that? Uh, Not really sure that's how I want to interact with the world, but... It's like Professor Farnsworth. He's like, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. I don't want to live on this planet anymore. (laughs) I'm just done when that happens. But maybe not. What if we could sit in front of these beautiful tubules of green algae in the desert somewhere under with solar power and we could actually put our intentions into a microorganism and it could make anything we wanted? to eat or taste like anything we wanted it to taste, like a full-on Willy Wonka chocolate factory. You know, maybe there's so... I just don't think we always used to have to eat this way. And I used to think that was ridiculous. The whole concept of a breatharian, I was just like, now come on. There was some story about a woman. She's like, I was a breatharian the whole time I was pregnant and breastfeeding. And I'm like, bullshit. I've been pregnant and I've breastfed and you were not breathing air. You were sneaking shit in the closet and pretending that you're a breatharian. There's no (laughs) way, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But maybe there is. I've changed my point of view. I don't know that she was doing that, but I think people used to be able to. And just like could we visit a farm and become altered by the experience of sitting next to those plants? Could we visit a cannabis-growing operation and not even have to consume it, but just walk through it and be changed by that experience? It is a moving experience. Well, it is. I mean, anybody would say that. Anybody would say that. You know, the reductionism that we have to go through to grow things, to eat things, the preparation of them, to get medication. Pharmaceutical medication is the most reductionist form of healing. Mm -hmm. This is what we've come to. We're so gross, and I mean, like, substantial, Mm -hmm. not disgusting, but substantial. Although disgusting is good too, because yeah. disgust without taste, without good taste, we aren't tasting life, mm. you know? And so we're so overly substantial. We require, you know, death and decay and degustation and like all of this to live. Is there another way? Was there another way? Was it different? Was it something you'd be like, I'd like to taste that dish or I don't even need to taste that dish. I can just look at it. You know, yeah. was that a possibility for humans once? Can we get there again? I mean, rea- the, the longer I live, the more I realize that in reality, anything, seemingly anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And just because we're in a, a particular situation and culture at the time, it dictates what we can and cannot see. And it's like, you know, going back to, to the consumption of, of food and as a breatharian, it's like, People will immediately scoff at that idea, and I I usually do scoff at that idea. But the consumption of food is by definition oxidative, and so every time you like technically, I would I would argue that you're not necessarily necessarily supposed to eat it's in a way. Poisonous, actually. Yeah, in a way, and so we have all these compromer um, uh, opponent process systems to help us get back to homeostasis. And that's one of the reasons why we need so many antioxidants in our in our food as well, is because carbohydrates and these things with high energy are also they produce reactive oxygen oxygen species. It's called ROSs for sure. ROSs, yes, mm-hmm. and they wreak havoc. They like wreak absolute havoc on your on your whole being, and we have to like 
have all these antioxidants, and we can get into the more scientific definition of what an antioxidant is, but in order to to come back to that homeostasis. I had a microbiology teacher in pre-med, and he changed my life. And he said, every time you eat, you're 10 minutes away from absolute death because the sugar just streaming into your bloodstream, especially if you're on an unhealthy diet, refined processed food diet, you know, what your body has to do to rebalance that flood of sugar. If everything doesn't work right, you will surely die of a coma of hyperglycemia Mm -hmm. in your bloodstream. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a question of ratios and dosages. And when people are diabetic, that's exactly what's going wrong. Their insulin isn't working. It's not being, you know, there, it's not being produced. It's not being picked up, received. It's not hitting the receptor right. It's not pulling the sugar out of the bloodstream and a whole bunch of events are happening, causing further damage. And now we have people who can't even eat food that's good for them. So what do we do when people say, well, I can't eat nightshades. I can't eat brassica because I get thyroid problems. Mm. I can't eat starch or I can't eat blueberries or when I get too many antioxidants, I get a rash. I mean, what the heck? Mm -hmm. Like nature is truly turning against us. You know, and this, I've just recent, another thing besides breatharianism is pure carnivorism Mm -hmm. that I've kind of scoffed at. I've kind of Mm -hmm. scoffed at it until literally five days ago because I started to really think about how if we live on a planet that has been so sprayed with toxins and our body has come to, through multiple generations, identify certain plants with the toxin that was sprayed on them. Let's Mm -hmm. just not even say that the plant itself might have some toxins, which most plants do. But let's say the body is saying, oh, no, last time I had that, there was something hitching a ride that was really bad for me. So I'm going to react to that plant. Or there's heavy metals in the soil that no matter, no type of clean farming is going to get rid of. If they're in the soil, they're in the soil, period. So if you're eating an animal, that animal's liver and detoxification processes for much of the flesh that you would want to eat has already cleaned it up. To some extent. To some extent. And so for someone who is reacting to so many foods, has autoimmune diseases attacking their own self, and they go on this car- pure carnivore diet, which I've just been rolling my eyes at, but some people are getting amazing relief from it. So I started to really think about it. And I'm like, wow, if you choose properly raised animals, they are doing this sort of pre-processing for you, and you're getting something that is more akin to the tissue you're replacing because you're an animal and animals need animals to replace themselves. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I don't want to believe that it is helping them, I I can see now how it does, but it is a tool Mm -hmm. and it is temporary. It is not a lifetime thing. No diet that extreme is forever. And if you want to be a true carnivore, like someone who lives in a frozen Northern land that yes, then you're going to better be ready to eat the whole dang animal yeah mm-hmm. but if you're going to be eating that liver of a of a cow that has been consuming genetically modified corn and soy that's sprayed with, sprayed with glyphosate you're going to be ingesting glyphosate from that that protein and from that liver there are these studies that were done on 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 sunfish and i and we we talked about this a little bit ashley um but there was a study done on on sunfish where 
they injected a certain quantity of glyphosate in, into the sunfish, and then they killed it, essentially. Or maybe they would administer it. Actually, they put the glyphosate, I think, in the food. Mm-hmm. And then that, that sunfish consumed the food, and then they killed it, and they looked at how much glyphosate was in the body. And it was about 17%, I think, of the original amount that they put in uh, to the food. But then they denatured the proteins with, uh, with a certain enzyme, and it was all of a sudden 70% of the glyphosate that was originally pr- provided to the sunfish was in the body. Hmm. And there are these other studies that show quite strongly that during protein synthesis, what's happening is that glycine and glyphosate are very similar chemicals as far as their like molecular weight and how they interact with our bodies. And, you know, it's their phosphate groups or phosphonates. And so during protein synthesis, it's a pretty messy process. It's happening so quickly that you're just like, oh, okay, here's a glycine. We'll grab that and put it in there. It's like, oh, here's a glyphosate. We'll put it in where the glycine is. And all of a sudden, gly- or glyphosate is getting encoded into proteins and it's becoming a part of us. And so if we're consuming that detoxification system, that liver, there's going to be these things that or these compounds that wreak havoc on our gut microbiome. They disrupt this process called, or this um, pathway called the shikimate pathway. And uh, it's, you know, the claim for Monsanto was that like, oh, humans don't have the shikimate pathway. We don't, that's not how we, that's not during, in our uh, metabolism. It's not how we produce energy. But all the bacteria in our gut do. And these, the bacteria in our gut that don't are things like cyanobacteria and E. coli and these other various um, um, bacteria that are actually able to consume that glyphosate as as a phosphate source or a phosphorus source um, for energy. And so we're in this position essentially where we're spraying this chemical that's, uh, you know, disrupting these pathways that help regulate our moods, that help regulate our digestion, that help regulate um, even potentially just what we think about and, and, and what we feel. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what, what is that, what is that doing? I, I don't think the carnivore diet is going to be necessarily addressing that. Not long-term. No. And so it's just like any chemo- chemotherapy. Can you get better enough before it kills you to move on to something that's more balanced? Mm-hmm. Right. And so anything long-term that is not balanced and natural to our bodies is, is going to eventually have diminishing rate of return, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so just to define a few things, so a protein is made up of a gazillion amino acids. Yeah. And amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, and they all have nitrogen as a base and then a certain shape. And so if glyphosate and glycine are interchangeable, then their shape is similar enough to fit into the formation of a large protein so that it uh, rolls up into a shape that still performs a function that is not patently recognizable by you as being dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. So you don't suddenly show up with growths on your body or Mm -hmm. something, your eyeball doesn't work properly or your hair has a strange texture. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, you just don't notice it over the short term. It's replaceable. Similarly, like there are, you know, iodine is necessary for thyroid function, but fluorine looks similar enough that it can displace that in your thyroid halogens or something, right? and they'll both fit there, but ultimately the thyroid won't work as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So similar shape, 
can perform that function to an extent, but ultimately something's going to break down. So, Mm -hmm. you know, glyphosate has been around since I think 1980, and it is the main ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. Mm -hmm. And so 1980... Uh, you had patents on it as a chelating agent, very potently. You said it was in the um, stripping manganese from an industrial, industrial process. Yeah. Essentially, essentially, yeah. Yeah, and so, and then it was also patented as an antibiotic. And recently, it, though, 2005. Fairly recently. Mm-hmm. But it didn't go into use in Roundup-ready genetically modified crops until 1996. But it was in our food supply as early as we know, as 1980. So all, I mean, you, you youngsters didn't, weren't <laughs> exposed to that, but Rami and I definitely were getting it in our Cheerios very mm-hmm. er, from very early on. Even if you were eating what you thought was healthy food, uh, it, it was, yeah, all those Quaker oats are being sprayed with glyphosate. So we've all experienced it. It's a part of all of our bodies. There's all kinds of protocols out there to detoxify from it. But one of the biggest things is, as you just said, Jay, what kind of organisms does it kill and what kind of organisms feed off of it? Mm-hmm. And all these pathogenic microorganisms in the soil and in you, they can work with it. It's like having an alien, you, you land on an alien planet and you can't breathe the air, but they can, you know? Yeah. And the organisms we need, like our lactobacilli and our bacillus organisms and our bifidobacteria and other things that go unnamed and unseen in the darkness of your mm-hmm. digestive tract are being destroyed by it. And this is not new. I mean, 1980 at least for this particular chemical mm-hmm. that has been given access to our daily lives without us knowing it, without us voting on it, Yep. without us even being able to choose with our dollar because we don't know that it's in there. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, you're a warrior, both of you are warriors to educate people and to fight against this being a part of the food that we choose to intake, e- even for people who don't know that they're taking it in. We're warriors because he won't have it in the food that he cooks with. I, I want to talk about it with people and make them understand that, no, it's actually not okay to buy that pasta non-organic because mm-hmm. it's you think it's simple, low on the food chain, but it is covered in this stuff. Yeah. And if you're going to choose an animal that was brought up on that and fed it, you can say grass-fed beef all day long if you want, but if it's in the middle of an area where glyphosate is being sprayed, you don't want that beef. Yeah. It's been a very interesting trajectory, like Amber and I coming together, you know, her being a nutritionist and me enjoying cooking, you know, being really into that. And then moving to Montana Mm -hmm. to like choose to basically become farmers. And um, it's so everything has kind of come full circle Mm -hmm. in terms of... um, you know, her being a nutritionist and me like really wanting to understand or even develop um, our, my own food source. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe this is a good time to actually get into your Montana Genesis story, if, if you will, because, <laughs> you know, so COVID hit. It's you got an Exodus story. Actually. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. That's fair. It's probably a better way to describe that. COVID hit, you're in Brooklyn. You, you saw the bullshit that was happening in, in, in the, the five boroughs. And it got, I think, was it what, a Tuesday? It was a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. March 17th, 2020. Well, yeah. I remember. 
you remember the exact day, yeah. And yeah. you guys essentially packed up a car and You know what did it? What? They canceled the St. Patty's Day Parade. Oh, oh my fuck God. That. <laughs> the audacity. So we were like, we're done with this city. No more St. Patty's Day. That actually was part of it because that was a big thing. So to cancel that parade was like, oh, shoot. Shit's gone down. Well, we, we knew things were in trouble. Like, this is what I was saying before. When you see the systems break down and, like, how are you going to operate in that system? How are you going to raise kids and feel secure and assist in a in an environment where you have multiple systems breaking down and on top of that people not practicing self-compassion you're going to have total chaos yeah and you know eight million people in new york city with in that environment for however long this was going to happen we just knew it wasn't where we wanted to be it was a very um easy sort of determination to to know that we wanted to be rooted and closer to nature, however that looked. Yeah. You know, um, it wasn't until we came out here to Montana that we, it, I mean, the light bulb went off when we started looking at properties and it's like, oh, wow, we can have a garden. Oh, wow, no, we can have chickens. Or maybe we can, you know, have, you know, a couple sheep or something. Who knows? It like, it, it was endless when you have, a little bit of land you can mm-hmm. really do anything you can be very creative yeah but it started with like we're not going to get shut inside during this thing for however long this is going to go on mm-hmm. and it helped yeah. that we had family in montana yeah to land there for a month two months we didn't know how long and just you know the kids are doing school online already so mm-hmm. let's just make sure we can get out into the fresh air and last time i was on montana there was food in the fields grazing on grass so i know there's food either domestic or wild there's plenty of food to be had in montana Mm -hmm. and that was definitely on my mind but i think the whole concept was already shaped by our experiences you know getting food from upstate new york traveling upstate looking at different farms um his experience in the culinary industry working with farmers my experiences as a nutritionist and then having been in hawaii we were on a little airbnb on a land and you had to <laughs> close the gate and you drive in and there's mm-hmm. sheep in your headlight and mm-hmm. a donkey in the morning and eggs from under the chicken and we were like wow you can actually do this with very little yeah. land you know and so uh, i realize in retrospect the things that shaped the concept for us that this was even feasible that this was even doable but, you know, I want to say I don't want to, like, poo-poo New Yorkers because New Yorkers come together in a crisis. I mean, that's been demonstrated it's over true. and over and again. And you're not going to have complete and utter every man and woman for themselves in New York. People are going to help each other. But when you just picture the emptying of a single multi-story apartment building oh. and you put all those people on the street in front of that building looking for a bottle of water or a, a loaf of bread – it, it it's frightening. It's a frightening thought experiment. You, you, everybody has different imaginations. Mine is very wild, and I can picture that. Mm-hmm. And start to see what's happening at Costco. Everybody remembers, right? And what starts to happen in the stores, and you have the people who behave and the people who just wait around the corner to grab from those who behave, you know? Mm-hmm. So we didn't have to be a part of it, so we didn't want to be a part of it. But driving out here... Uh, 36 hours straight with two cats and two kids and a brother-in-law and us in one car um, to make it out here and then just see what can happen out here. You know, what is possible? And uh, 
it was uh, March and then it became April and the weather was only getting better. And so we were fooled into a complacency mm. of thinking that it would actually be a really good temperate climate to get land and grow things. Mm. Uh, we forgot about the winter, but. Well, then we came to the farmer's market and met you guys. We did. And it was like, wow, you know, like Jay and Ashley, it's like young couple and they're like doing this amazing farming, not just any farming. Like you guys are really inspired me. I know you guys inspired Amber too. Your produce like, sings. Mm-hmm. What you guys are doing is amazing. So we we came into a community that we felt like, wow, we can really resonate here. And then for me, my I just had fantasies from there. And you know, Amber caught me looking at exotic chicks online. <laughs> Still does. Before you know it, I had chickens Incubators. being delivered. <laughs> I have I have chickens being delivered on Tuesday, as a matter of fact. Mail or, mail order brides. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, the fantasy of like, how can we create our own sort of um, self-sustainable food model that, you know, it's it's all part of like a community here and we, we interact with you guys and, um, you know, and other people that are doing, you know, that, you know, that we can share and barter mm-hmm. with or just trade ideas and learn from. It, it's been amazing. Because we came onto this property and the land was neglected for many, many years. And so learning how to, okay, you know, get that back into balance was a challenge. And it still is. It's a process. It's a process. There's there's no destination that you get to when it Mm -hmm. comes to remediation and development of a property. It's just, you just go towards it. Yeah. 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 And you get taken down different roads with it. And, you know, Rami will say, you know, that ditch over there, I want to straighten that out. And I'm like, wait, you got to see where the water goes because straightening it out might not be a good idea. And I'll be like, I want to plant a garden over here. He'll be like, those rocks, you're going to dig three inches down and this is going to become an impossibility, you know. So we have to sit patiently. And it takes a little while watching how things go, where things grow, where they don't grow, what. Why they grow there and not there? Which way does the water flow? Which way does it flow when it's a really heavy year? And I, and I don't want to fool people into thinking um, that it can just happen in a short time. Mm. We're not self-sustainable. We're definitely not. Very There's a lot of external. Yeah. It's a lot of external yeah. inputs and self-sustainable. I mean, believe me, you might not want to be, especially in a climate that has a long winter. Because mm-hmm. I mean, what our recent ancestors had to do was cut hay by hand fork it onto a wagon pile it in a big pile hope it doesn't burn hope it doesn't catch on fire hope it doesn't rot i mean we work nonstop. they worked double time that and it's it's just not but to have food to weather certain short-term crises to be able to trade and exchange to trade and exchange ideas but what i was amazed here both of us meeting you guys, meeting some other people too, was the language that people were using. The concept of regenerative agriculture, organic plus regenerative, mm-hmm. sustainable, permaculture, no-till. I mean, you know, we were so drawn to your booth at the farmer's market. There's all this beautiful produce around. Mm-hmm. Our, the farmer's market mm-hmm. in Hamilton is amazing. Mm-hmm. Your booth, there's something, some special glow coming mm-hmm. out of it. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's going on here? And I look at the sign. I'm like, 
regenerative no-till agriculture. And I just, it was like one of those moments I was like, whoa, tell me about that. <laughs> and then Jay said mycorrhizal fungi. And I was like, oh, I'm in love. Oh my God. Tell me more. Tell me more. And it was just immediate like recognition, which is so exciting and so phenomenal. And I'm just going to say, you know, I travel a lot for work and I go to places like California where there's supposed to always be fresh produce and where most of the produce of the country comes from and, and where all the organic stuff is grown and where all the vegans live. <laughs> and I eat huge plates of vegetal matter that tastes like nothing. I will get a big, beautiful arugula beet salad with goat cheese crostini and I'm like so excited and I can't taste it. Doesn't mm. taste like anything. And it's been so, I don't remember recognizing this so much before the way that I do now. I get a head of lettuce from you. We bring it home. It doesn't even get in the bowl because I'm just eating it. This is so good all by itself. I'm in California. I can't put enough dressing on it because it has mm. no flavor, no taste. The texture is all wrong. And I'm not just saying California one time. I'm saying that there are ways to grow things organically and there are other ways to grow things organically. And they do not come out the same and yeah. they do not equal the same thing in taste texture nutrient content or impact mm -hmm. on the soil the air the water and the people around them mm -hmm. and you know this is just whatever you're doing is so different and i i do think it comes down to the microbiome and your intentions behind that it too, too. Mm -hmm. your thoughts yeah, definitely helps. your thoughts and your self-compassion do you want, want to touch I about the to... evolution of our our idea of like regenerative organic and 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 where did that idea or... come yeah. from? Well, so it's it's kind of funny actually that you brought up that terminology because we've been discussing recently. Is this where you were thinking yeah. of going? Um, and I think even on one of the our podcasts, we brought up this terminology because in our society and through social media, there are so many buzzwords used for marketing tactics, whether or not people abide by them or truly believe in what they're saying. And for us, looking back, what we've realized is that having our sign-up that said, no-till regenerative agriculture, that was really us like putting something out there, practicing saying something, testing it out, and seeing if that's who we Oh. were who we could become mm -hmm. and we have moments of like guilt looking back and being like well we're actually like we're still not actually a no-till farm we're low-till and that may all that may be all we ever get to is just being a low-till farm if you define power herring as tillage yeah which is an and argument, but and we're certainly not a regenerative farm we still have we're realizing how much we have to learn before we could even call ourselves regenerative. Yeah. Sure, we have some regenerative practices, but we don't even yet have animals on our old pastures to try to bring them back to life. And if we did, of course, we would work on rotational grazing and all those practices that contribute to regenerative agriculture. But we realized that in a way we had even used that terminology ourselves as like a buzz to draw people in because of this like mission and value we had mm -hmm. and wanting to attract, I guess, the yeah. right type of people like people like you that care about the food and want to learn because we just want to educate um and we were we were interacting with those around us based off of the knowledge and the experience that we had in that time so far and so now with multiple years under our belt and more 
reading and understanding and just thinking about our own shortcomings because fuck everybody has shortcomings and everybody mm-hmm. projects no matter how hard we try even if we're a saint maybe not but mm-hmm. if you, even if you're close to being uh, uh, a saint like you're still going to project and have these as what i like to say is you you say thing people generally talk about things because they don't usually understand them to the full extent and that's why we have to communicate them to each other to try and have this shared understanding of what this concept is and so things that are understood generally aren't talked about Uh, you know as an example like generally understood is i came from my mother and father and so i don't really talk about how they got together one night and you're shaking the table oh how they got together one night and produced me. It's like, I, it's, I just understood. And so I don't really talk about that with people. They're just like, oh, that's your mother and father. I understand what that means. Good point. But when we're talking about regenerative agriculture and, and that's what we instilled or hoped we would be at that point in time, doesn't mean that we were. Mm. And so uh, what we've come to is like, you know, even just t- thinking about beyond organic. Like, what does that mean? Let's break that down. What does beyond organic mean? Like, are you... As beyond I, comprehension of organic. Yeah, like, are we, <laughs> like I said before, like, are we fourth dimensional farming here? Like, what does that even well, mean? This, this, you're saying that, and I'm going back to, oh, you guys were talking about the microbiome and how they communicate with each other. So, like, was this idea even yours? Was it? Just, mm. It could have been the microbiome saying, mm. hey. Give us a chance. Right? Actually yeah. Do some, just put it on the sign. It will come. Mm. Yeah. And the right people will come because they're going to resonate with yeah. you. And you will start doing it. And you'll start growing it. And then see what happens. I mean, yeah. yeah. How much Absolutely. of it is us, really? Probably <laughs> sure. not much. Well, so, and, oh, go ahead, Amber. Well, I just want to clarify. So you, you till sometimes? so so tilling is appropriate for a number of reasons and it's inappropriate for a number of reasons and there's different scales and there's different scales you have deep tillage you have conservation tillage you have just um incessant tillage which a lot of people do is a tillage to control tillage yeah tillage to control weeds tillage to incorporate a cover crop so when you you know, when you till to incorporate a cover crop, you're trying to produce, you know, bring that organic matter down to the soil to maximize the, the, the surface area that is exposed to the microorganisms that are going to break down that lignin cellulose, break down those carbohydrates, break down those proteins, et cetera, to then be redistributed and, and put into other life forms. But you're also bringing up things that didn't want to see the light of day or breathe the oxygen that you breathe on a mm-hmm. daily basis. And you're upsetting a balance or even a root mat or a system of roots and cookies and cakes and microorganisms and yeah. things. Yeah. I just yeah. didn't know there are there that, that many tillages. I mean, there's different ways to till. There's a few different implements and tools. Yeah. But the, the concept of tillage is to uh, um, bring the stuff that is underneath the ground up to the top and bring the stuff that is on top underneath the ground. Mm. So it's a, how it's far a, it's, is the question? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's and how far and do you even need to do that necessarily for certain practice soil management practices? Mm-hmm. When it comes to cover crops, for example, you would till those under the ground if you want to plant into that bed really quickly within a week or so, and it depends on the season. So if you're in early spring and you're incorporating or early to mid spring and you're incorporating rye, which has been overwintering all year long or all winter long in that soil, 
and you want to plant into that two weeks after it, it's too cold. You know, it's not, you know, metabolisms in the, in the soil are dictated by temperature. And so if it's a really cold soil, you're not going to break down that, that material very quickly as opposed to in the summertime when you're going to break down, break down the material much quicker. But you got to plant. Mm-hmm. What's that? But you need to plant right then. But so. you need to plant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I really like um, power herring or I, I really like flail mowing and cutting up cover crops into really small pieces mm-hmm. and then basically mixing that into the top three to four inches of the soil. And so you'll still have these like chunks and stuff. But if I'm transplanting into that into that bed, say like I'm transplanting some brassicas because you're not really direct seeding those often, or at least a lot of farms don't, then it's okay. But if you want to direct seed into that, it's impossible, unless you're literally seed drilling like wheat or mm. various um, mm-hmm. commodity crops like mm. that. So it's cool. going to be much more difficult. Or if you had a much bigger farm and more space to grow because you could then cover mm. that or leave it, let it break down mm-hmm. longer before you're planting Plant back else. into it. But in a market garden, our size is just not an option yeah. to... I mean, we plant we plant what we can into the spaces that we can. Yeah. But to go back to Amber's question about, so you guys are tilling or are you tilling? So we're not actually tilling, tilling, tilling. Yeah. But we, uh, I guess two years ago when we expanded the farm and built a new built <laughs> developed a new field to grow crops on, it was on this old pasture that's covered in a variety of invasive grasses. No, um, they're not. They're native. Or that, that like they're like rush yeah. or thrush. What no, thrush? Oh, the rushes. Yeah, the rushes. Yeah. <laughs> or, the, or the quack grass. Yeah, that is a beautiful plant and and uh, pollinator attractor. Like, there's so many good things about it. But it's so difficult to work with because yeah. you can have a centimeter of that root and it will repro- It'll grow back from that yeah. centimeter of root. That's how persistent. It, it's life force. We're talking about life forces, that yeah. thing does oh my not gosh. die. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. it's difficult. And Gotta so, have a conversation with it. It has more self love than you. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, our our pasture is really acidic. It's five four, and it's a very acidic soil. And we can. It's amazing. It is. We can grow some crops we on that. Berries would be great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for most of the crops that we want to grow, we want to bring that back up towards six five to seven. Hmm. You know, just slightly acidic. Cause... And so in getting to circle back, so in getting that field started, we chose to do an initial tillage with just a small, like, push tiller. I don't know to how deep lime. it even went. How deep did Six that inches. go? Six inches. Six inches, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Um, and put in something alkalizing. Yeah, mm-hmm. lime. Mm-hmm. And it just, it gave us the opportunity to try to pull up some of that grass Mm -hmm. and then go through by hand and pull it away because at the end of the day you can't grow a a row of greens that are being consumed by the grass and it's still a battle every year we still have to pull a ton of grass but it's It's gotten better better, Mm -hmm. uh, after that initial tillage building up the rows adding some compost uh, and then practicing those low and no-till practices on each individual row mm-hmm. uh, to help suppress any new grass that's trying to grow, uh, circulating around the silage tarps to mm-hmm. help uh, suppress its growth when we're not using those plots. So all those different methods do tie back into 
the no-till practices, but to get that area started so that we could grow on right. it in the same year, we did till it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and what, this, this is what it takes to grow food, people. It does. So this is, yeah. this is the people that grow your food. This is the effort they have to go to. They're not just out in the sunshine in swimsuits frolicking <laughs> in the pasture and plucking things into a basket to deliver to you at farmer's yeah, market. Yeah, skipping down the road at the no, farmer's market. No, but, but I'm grateful that you came clean because I was just ready to go back out this year again with my syringe and just inject one seed at a time into the established root mat of the pasture grasses. It just didn't work very well last year, and I was just thinking, well, Jay and Ashley never till, so I'm just going to shoot one little seed in here at a time and mm-hmm. pray for the best, you know, and it just really wasn't working. And so what, so no, I'm what, just kidding. So what, no, for real. <laughs> what, when did you decide that like, this is what I want to do, like farming? Like, when did it hit you? Like, and what was it? I'm very, very curious. I was, I was 22 mm-hmm. and it was, so I went to school for behavioral psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I fir- when I first got to college, I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to Wall Street. That was who I was. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, doesn't matter. I'm going to study economics. I'm going to study business. And I'm going to Wall Street. I just want to make money. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and now, because that's the, that was kind of the environment I, I was raised in, in mm-hmm. the Northeast, right? And gosh, I love the Northeast and I love East Coast energy, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's just misguided or misdirected. Mm-hmm. And I got to school and <laughs> I chose Brown over over harvard i'm so happy i did because well like brown's a little more a little more esoteric if you will a little more a little hippy dippy and if i went to harvard i i just knew i was gonna be going down that road and i'm right and bless my mother she, you know she's like well jay you know because i decided to go to harvard and she was like well jay she's like just go on your brown weekend trip and just hang out yeah. with those kid with those that soccer team the harvard trip we didn't do shit and we were watching star wars and it's like that's what you guys are going to be doing for somebody who might be coming here to play soccer with you guys the brown team they took me out multiple days we went partying they went they showed me you know went to museums and RISD, got to see like incredible artwork and exposed me to all these other aspects of life and i was like wow that's interesting i chose brown but i still thought i was going to become you know a wolf of wall street if you will and Junior year, I started to take some plant biology classes. I started to take some, some quote unquote sustainable agriculture classes. However, that might be if you can just study them as opposed to actually um, performing the those behaviors. But then coming into my senior year, I was pretty much finishing all of my coursework in behavioral psych, and I was working at a timing lab and training dogs and. And all this, all this stuff. And then I took this one plant biology class with this guy, and he was like probably like ninety at that mm-hmm. point. But he was just such a beautiful soul, and and really um, planted the proverbial seed into me that there's just so much more going on in in these ecosystems and in plants that we don't even understand yet. And I was like, that is fascinating. I need to go and li- and work on a farm. So that summer, I was an intern at, at this 10-acre organic uh, farm in, in Chelmsford, Mass, called Jones Farm. And we were growing an insane amount of produce. We had like 300 people in the CSA. And, and a month in, I mean, the owners were interesting folk. They weren't the best managers. And we so they had a, a, a produce manager uh, uh, that was 
really doing all the work and really managing the whole system. And 10 acres of crops is people don't like people like, oh, yeah, 10 acres. It's like that's an insane amount of produce to grow as a team. Even Mm -hmm. we had six. But that was just like it was so much work. And then he left. And we all of us interns were just like, well, what's going to happen? And so somebody had to step up to become the manager. And after a couple of weeks, I decided to and spent the, the rest of the season working there. And at the end of that season, I was like, yep. I was like, this is my path. Like, don't know where it's going to take me, but this is my path. And I decided to start working that winter um, in urban agriculture, as it's termed. And worked for some companies that or worked for a company that produced uh, freight shipping containers. They grew vertical hydroponic systems in these shipping containers. Super high technology, $10,000 computers, all these you know, gadgets and whatever, and growing in this box vertically and trying to just like figure out how to even get water to these crops growing vertically. It was all a challenge. And then we had to flush the water out completely for multiple days and just just use water, no nutrient solution for seven to 10 days before you harvest these crops. Because if you didn't, you could taste the salt in them and taste Mm. how really just it was not palatable. It just wasn't, it was like, it was just gross Mm. tasting. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty common in the hydroponic industry. And I was like, you know what? This is not the path. This is not, this is not sustainable. And people Mm. were claiming that this is sustainable agriculture. And through my experience, I was like, well, this, this is not how you live with nature. And they're like, well, we can use solar panels to, (laughs) to, to, to capture that energy and then put it into a battery in order to grow these crops. But let's like the, the conversion ratio ratio of how much energy you can even capture with, with a solar panel and then the, the energy lost to store that energy. And then the energy lost to, to, to operate that, that, uh, that, uh, pump or those lights. It's like, there's, there's, it's so inefficient in how it's grown. It just, intuitively i didn't understand it completely at the time but just intuitively it was like this is just not sustainable agriculture this is never going to feed or at least very rarely if ever going to feed the planet you're just making some sandwich lettuce you're just making some bullshit sandwich lettuce (laughs) and there's too many middlemen like there's too many little entities taking energy out of that system there is yeah and you're so tied to the grid you're so tied to high technology but that's the egocentric nature of our culture is that Jeez. we can do it. We can, we can reduce the way that nature has been doing, has been processing elements and molecules into living things that we can consume for energy for millions and hundreds, if not hundreds of millions of years, but we can do it better. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we can do it better within 10 years. This is the way this is the, you know, this high technology is going to solve all of our problems with agriculture. I'm God and I'm going to make it rain in my mm-hmm. little like cargo carrier vertical hydroponic farm. Yeah. I found it fascinating after we came here to Montana shortly after, you know, that a lot of people have left the city, cities all across the country and went not just into rural areas, but actually went into agriculture. Yeah. People that were growing up in an urban environment, not knowing anything, just like us, not knowing anything. And coming into an agricultural lifestyle, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, people are doing YouTube um, channels of their uh, evolution in that, and it's quite fascinating. And Amber and I resonate with that. It's like, wow, you know, 
our, our life definitely was like a reality TV show in so many ways, like coming from Brooklyn to like <laughs> now raising sheep and border collies. I mean, it's trying just, to tackle them. We'll get to that here in a minute. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's been a wild, wild ride. And, but also very inspiring to once again meet you guys because something else drew you to this. It's like you awoke, you woke to, you woke up to something. Whereas for us, it's like going back, what, what's, what's the catalyst that's going to bring people back to agriculture? Mm. Some sort of catastrophe. And yeah. so that's kind of what it was for us. We saw what was happening. We didn't want to be a part of it. And then coming here, it's like, well, okay, we can at least raise our own food and, um, you know, do our own thing here. Mm -hmm. And um, we're inspired by you guys. We're inspired mm -hmm. by everyone else that's been in our, that, that are also in our shoes, mm -hmm. just doing it and diving headfirst into it. And that's really the only way you can learn. It's amazing what the soil will teach you. It's amazing what the animals will teach you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course you know, the climate teach you a lot. <laughs> what I find fascinating with, with you two is coming from, from Brooklyn. It's, it's a, it's a community that is, it's like high residency. You guys are like talking a lot. You talk faster. You uh, interact with more people on any given day, comparatively usually to around here and more agrarian lifestyles. And you brought that same, same, um, or like schemas or um, processes to hear. And, and mm. within like two or three months, you guys knew on a factor of 10 more people than we did. <laughs> and you guys all of a sudden were like bringing sheep over and all of a sudden you guys started like breeding border collies. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck are these guys doing over there? I was like, <laughs> how are they having much enough time to do this? And then, but also like sit back and meet all these people uh, from all like you guys just have this innate ability to to uh, to befriend and interact with a wide variety of people and, and bring I, them together and bring them together and that was a big thing we started to have these dinners at your house even though it was like in flux and you were fixing and and uh, things and all of a sudden you had sheep and lambs and you had forty seven border border collies hanging around and like. <laughs> And all of a sudden you have peaking ducks and mm -hmm. it's like, yeah. like what, it's like how crazy. did you guys manage to do all this? And it's, it's just a testament to, to your will to interact with the community and just go all in. That's really. an amazing compliment. Thank it you is. for that. And, um, you know, even in Brooklyn, we're, we're community builders Yeah, and we have, we still have an amazing community in Brooklyn, New York. Those that and, are still there. And, um, it's, yeah. And we did bring that energy here and it really does come down to, you know, what is it that you want? You can take this anywhere you go, you know, mm -hmm. just being a community builder. And um, it's because he's a good chef. Food helps. You know, food is a great way to bring people together. And he loves to throw down. And that's, I mean, we had that thank you barbecue, you know, last summer. And nobody was like anybody else that came to that barbecue. It Everybody was so, was so different. <laughs> and yet, it was like 45 people and this was all the people we've met, you know, or a lot of them. And they just all came and were like, well, those people over there. I think people were shocked. And I think people were shocked. You don't go to church. These aren't like, all people in your church. How did, how did you, did you yeah. How, how do you know all these people? <laughs> yeah. We were just observing and it was funny. But as far as diving head in, I mean, 
I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's also partly who we met. Oh, yeah. You want a puppy? Well, you need to meet Kim. She has sheep. So if you get this dog, you need sheep. And then, oh, this person has pigs. No, no pigs yet, please. And oh, this guy wants to give you cows. Okay, we're working on it. You know, I mean, we just literally, I think we bit off more than we can chew for sure. It was a wild synchronicity of events. Mm. That's nothing that we really needed to try doing. I think we just by having that open attention, okay, we're going to dive into this agriculture thing. Like it came to us. We didn't really have to go to it, which is Mm. kind of wild to sit back and observe. Like looking back at it now, it's like, how did we... Now, how are we raising border collies? And like this, yeah, that I still don't understand. And and like, where did these donkeys come from? Mm, like, I know exactly yeah. how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and why it, are they still here? Is the question. And you know, we we have amazing neighbors, and you know, we ha- we have a neighbor that's doing goat milk, like fresh raw goat milk. And so now I'm like really into like making cheeses, mm-hmm. and I've never done that before. So here's like a whole new like learning curve of food stuff that I've never learned or dived into before, but now I'm diving in, you know, I'm diving, mm-hmm. I'm in it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, deep, and it's, it's, it's just an adventure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But an, people would say, like you did, like how is it that you've been here less than a year and you have all this stuff and – how did you learn how to do this? You didn't do this in Brooklyn, obviously. So where did you learn? And I just, I'm like YouTube videos. Doesn't everybody <laughs> just watch YouTube videos on yeah. how to, we do consume. We're like, okay, how do you build a chicken tractor to put your chickens in and haul them out in the pasture? Boom, YouTube video, he's building it. Yeah. You know, what do I need to do with the soil? If I, you know, like just, it's not shameful to say who's done this before, mm-hmm. how have they succeeded, what did they come up against? But you have to remember where are you compared to where are they? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about like how long it takes at a certain temperature for all that material to break down in the soil, like if it were South Carolina, it's a whole different thing mm-hmm. than here in Montana. You know, if you're in Florida, it's a whole different thing. If you're in Texas, it's a whole different thing. And so what is sustainable agriculture? where you are is very different. I mean, there are places where you wouldn't even try to dig into the soil. You're just going to build everything up on top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're places you wouldn't even try to grow anything outdoors. Right. So, you know, we look at the deserts of Israel of them doing algae farming. It's because nothing grows there, but there's a ton of sun. So why not grow algae? It's a controlled system. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you might as well be on another planet putting down a pot and growing so that's what you can grow right. so i mean the the human innovation is tireless it is. the capacity for innovation is really astounding and some kind of self-preservation so we're going to see that all the time i just feel like you said earlier i there are certain iterations of life on this planet that i don't want to live through and so we have to decide how we want to live our life and we can all four work ourselves to the ground Mm-hmm. and not ever arrive at that destination. And so how do we learn to balance that out and still provide what we are committed to providing, whatever that is? So mm-hmm. it's, this is our life's lesson, not how to learn how to do low-till, semi-regenerative, partially sustainable agriculture or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like the, the, the goal is balance. Mm-hmm. And how do you find an inner joy and a love of yourself and what you are doing every single day you know even dinner if you're parties, doing dishes more dinner right. parties more dinner parties, <laughs> dinner parties for sure. let's watch job was a tampoco 
Tampopo. Tampopo. Yeah, yeah. 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 sit that. down and watch that video. Yeah, movie. absolutely. Yeah. It's very inspiring and it's funny. It's about so, noodles. So, border collies. Oh, you had to bring it to that. <laughs> Did you ever, did you ever in your wildest dreams think that you guys would be breeding border collies now? No, and I really didn't understand how they had sex either. Uh, that if I had known about that, <laughs> it, it might have been a whole different thing. It's a lot weirder than you think it is. The humping is just not even a prelude to the whole thing. So we knew nothing. Yeah. Suffice it to say, n- n- didn't ever see it in action. Never had any desire to manipulate the sexual life of any or reproductive life of any animal, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even with the sheep, we just kind of throw them all together. We're like, I don't know, see what happens, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it just came to us. We just wanted one puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and a good woman, the worst kind of a good woman, she, she uh, <laughs> kind of took over our life, and we wound up with um, you know, viable business, which helps with a mm-hmm. farm. Having side hustles definitely helps. And I've had to really, I don't think if I were breeding French Bulldogs or even some kind of a doodle uh, or a chihuahua, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. That I just, that I'd have to draw the line and be like, no, this is just not where I want to go. The Border Collie at least is a working dog. The whole goal of keeping them in a bred lineage and really deciding who gets to breed who is, is to keep these lines from as long as herders have had dogs working with them and they make the job easier not ours ours watch us chase sheep instead of them chasing (laughs) sheep we can't risk it but um in general they are they're working lines and we and and there's a um, there's a pride in that and also a duty and a responsibility and almost a mission in that but i still wouldn't stick with it if it weren't for this it's teaching me so much about human behavior mm-hmm. and the projection that we place upon our environment, not the least of which is the pets that we choose to own. I'm going to get a border collie and it's going to be like this in my life. And I'm going to look like that when I'm out in the park with my super smart border collie that winds up being smarter than me. And I have no idea what to do with it now, mm. you know? So it's, it's fascinating and it creates a, uh, platform for interacting with people really on a whole different level, which again is about, are you sure you know yourself well enough to take on this kind of a dog who will surely know all that you're about within three days and have decided exactly (laughs) how to manipulate you. Yeah. And then just that care of a living thing for kids, teaching them to take care of, a living thing that can't take care of itself because you haven't bred it to. It's not in an enclosure where it can. And you've taught it to do otherwise, to be dependent upon you. Now, how are you going to think about that? Um, So for kids, it's enormous. For us as adults, it's enormous. There are plenty of breeders who don't keep the animal's best interest in mind. They're Mm -hmm. just looking at the next litter and what money it's going to bring in. These dogs are so smart. I mean, it's incredible how smart they are. I mean, incredible. Just like Amber saying, they could just like read you up and down. Like, okay, I can like manipulate you right here and they'll get what they want. Yeah. You know, you probably could train them to like do your taxes. (laughs) You know, they're, they're that smart. They are. They are. Yeah. They absolutely are. 
Yeah. And so in a time when, you know, everyone will say, hey, there's so many animals to be adopted at a shelter. And, you know, the answer to that is there wouldn't be so many animals in shelters if there were good breeders that were really educating their Mm -hmm. clientele on what they're taking on Mm -hmm. and following through and making sure that they're having the best possible uh, opportunity to create an amazing engagement with that animal. Mm -hmm. And so like anything, like, you know, raising imperfect but hugely nutritious, glowing, beautiful vegetables and, and produce, the education is such an important aspect of it. And you have to create a market that is educated. Mm-hmm. And that that's the battle, really, because we can uh, we can breed these animals with with intention and and raise these plant or rear these plants with with love, but at the end of the day, like none of that really matters if 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 uh, our consumers aren't really necessarily educated on it because there's there's no value and there's no appreciation um, of which goes behind the rearing mm-hmm. of border collies. I mean. Border collies are like really quite insane animals, especially border collies. I, I forget the name of one of the the dogs, but it was able to understand. I think eight hundred and fifty different individual names of things. So there's this beautiful video. It's pretty long, obviously, but there is this individual who's just sitting on, uh, or the trainer who's sitting on a couch, and all of these toys. There's like eight hundred toys behind him from tennis balls to stuffed animals to ropes, et cetera. And all of these have names that have been predetermined based on the communication of the trainer and the dog. And he just says one name after the other, and the dog can go into that Mm -hmm. whole nest of toys, find that exact one first time. Wow. And it's like these dogs, you can, people, of course, they're like, well, my dog understands me. And it's like my dog... You know, like our dog, for example, we we asked her, we trained her on 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 where her food is, and so all we have to do is ask her, "Where's your food?" <laughs> oh, she's sleeping, <laughs> and she goes and 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 puts her nose on on her on her kibble, and then we can say, "Where's your bowl?" And she goes right over to the bowl and puts her her paw in it and sits down and looks at us, be like, "Now I'm ready for food." and then we tell her them to wait. I mean, how do you how do you conceptualize waiting to a dog with without without communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, um, or, um, or or body cues even? And it's like, it's it's just I don't know. For me, it's just this endless endlessly fascinating interaction that you get to have with these animals. Yeah. Then they're as developed and as smart as the human is intelligent and motivated, and so they truly do become a projection of the human they're interacting with, mm-hmm. whatever that is. All your anxieties are going to get projected mm-hmm. through, especially the more intelligent the animal, the more likely they can be anxious or traumatized. Mm-hmm. And um, and so you have to really, it's definitely the biggest success will come through knowing yourself when you interact with that animal. Yeah. If you had to say anything to, to people out there who would like to... Um, have certain breeds of dogs out there that are very, I would say, high energy or, for lack of better words, in, intense. What would you What would you say to them before they go out there and, and buy a border collie? Mm. Yeah, you, you really have to research what the purpose of that breed is because it's not just how they're built and how they're bred; it's their intellect and and their nature, and you have to decide if you can provide that kind of a life. 
for that dog. That doesn't mean you have to get sheep. That doesn't mean you have to herd all these animals. You don't even have to train herding, but you have to engage the mind and be willing to engage the mind in the same way. And there are many ways that that can look like, but this is a dog that spends time outdoors. Mm -hmm. And if, if you think that spending five minutes outdoors three times a day and a hike on the weekend is enough, you've got another thing coming. This is a dog that is always outdoors checking on things with you. They are your partner, mm -hmm. not your pet. Mm -hmm. And so if you can create that, even if you're going to an office, even if you're an electrician, even if you're a plumber, you know, if you're a farmer, if you work in a vineyard, if you can create that where the dog feels equal in its responsibility, mm -hmm. um, then you might consider one. Yeah. If you're insecure, I would reconsider a border collie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would I would add to that saying too, like if you're choosing a border collie for a dog, especially, it, it, you're not training the dog. It's it's really the the human that needs the training. Um, there are certain, and then you can, you know, create a partnership with the dog so you can Play. hopefully get it to do what it. You want it to do, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it, it requires more human training than, oh, I'm going to train this dog to do this or that. It doesn't really work like that. But humans who tap into our, who tap into our playful nature, mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. um, that's ideal for a dog. It's just we all forget how to play, and we're mm -hmm. like, it's now playtime. No, it's always yeah. <laughs> playtime. <laughs> the more we tap back into playfulness, yeah the better we'll be at what we do with our yeah. animals. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good point. And getting back to, uh, um, shit, what did you just say? Like having having a, uh, a role for the dog, like a border collie doesn't necessarily need to be herding sheep, mm -hmm. right. but, you know, maybe it needs, it just needs, it, every single day when it wakes up, it has a certain tank of energy and need to, um, in, I mean, not to anthropomorphize, but to think critically and uh, and uh, in a way not manipulate their environment, but to problem to, solve. To, yeah, sure. that's the word. Thank mm -hmm. you. To have yeah, to have some aspects that are um, allow them to pro problem solve. Like for mm -hmm. example, we have a Belgian Malinois pit bull terrier cross, and people are like, as soon as we say that, people are like, whoa, like what's she like? And she's like, well, she's pretty chill a lot. But she also rips apart woodchucks and loves to eat voles, mm -hmm. and like that's in her nature. She like she is our vol. She's our mouser. We don't need. I mean, we don't necessarily need a cat right now, for many reasons. But um, she, you know, last year she probably killed three hundred voles around our farm, and that has, you know, economic um, um, uh, Benefit benefits. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, economic benefits to our she's to our production. Dog. She's a working she's dog. A working dog. <laughs> But a Malinois, you know, originally, like, they're generally, they were herders. You know, mm -hmm. they're in the line of Dutch shepherds and German shepherds. And they're now used for, for military uh, operations and police operations, among other um, applications. But we found a job for her. And mm -hmm. I all I had to do is say, uh, I don't even have to say anything, actually. Mm -hmm. I just have to go to, over to the silage tarp and start pulling sandbags off of that tarp that's on our ground. And her nose is right next to that tarp immediately. She can't help herself mm -hmm. but just to just start mousing. Mm -hmm. And she'll spend 10 hours a day in our mm -hmm. fields 
looking for mice. Not because bowls. she's hungry. Mm-hmm. No, nope. no, nope. she's well fed for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although she will eat them. She will eat them. Yeah. She'll gorge herself on. That's another thing, people. Please feed your dog like a dog. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah. I mean, the number of problems that dogs have mentally because they're eating processed food that's worse than you even eat mm-hmm. is mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. And, and just like humans, simple return to what would be a natural diet for a dog or a good replication of that. I don't care what your vet says about the latest Purina or yeah. other you know, permutation of that. Yeah, we all can't afford to just you know, feed a dog like a wolf, but make sure they're getting some aspect mm-hmm of what they naturally should get because they have a microbiome too. Mm -hmm. And if you feed them cooked, processed cookies in a bowl only, they will lose their stomach acid. They will lose those powerful microorganisms that keep pathogens at bay. And they'll get sick at the slightest whiff of a vole Mm -hmm. or another dog's excrement or a rotten whatever that they find. No, that's a good point. And they'll get rashes and their hair will fall out and then you'll put them on steroids and antibiotics and then... Nails are brittle, teeth are brittle. Then they get diabetes, then you're injecting them with shots every day. I mean, come on. it's sounding a lot like humans. It's a lot. I mean, let's talk about a projection. Right. We project onto our animals the same plot that we Mm -hmm. have put ourselves in. Mm -hmm. You ever see those photos of people with their dogs and they look just like their dog? Yeah. It's always. (laughs) I mean, it's wild. Like, how did that happen? But you guys don't. No? Yourselves mm. and your dogs are themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's some people that look just like their overweight bulldog. Yeah. Or their yeah. Afghan hound. <laughs> oh, I can picture that person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well. On that note. Shall we sum it up? I was thinking so. Yeah. F- five o'clock, we can do a uh, wander through the greenhouses. and Yeah refresh ourselves in a little bit of nature for a moment sounds great yeah works for us well thanks for doing this you guys really appreciate you coming over here and being a part of this new new journey that we're having mm-hmm. in this yeah. podcast thank you for having us yeah. yes, and, thank you. and we we hope you continue with this like on a regular basis and really just put out like all of your experience and wisdom mm-hmm. about farming and inspire people to and life to educate people about Mm -hmm. the power of uh, farming and consuming, you know, high-quality food. It's so important. We're we're missing out on it on so many levels. Yeah, conscious consumerism. Yeah, Yeah. conscious consumerism, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. and have some self-empathy out there, self-compassion. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Maybe meditate on that and really feel or figure out what that means to you. Yeah, that's an endless meditation <laughs> it is yeah well we're definitely gonna we would love to have you guys on again we can maybe get into a little more details on your pursuits as far as like um this peaking duck that you are ordering and how to even herd sheep and and take care of sheep because there's a lot of people out there that are in similar positions as you two right like as as us like we weren't in agriculture and now we're living a more agrarian lifestyle Mm. and there's this mass exodus again as you put that's happening where people are going from cities back to more rural lifestyles more agrarian societies and like maybe that is even with the advent of technology maybe that is where we're going as a as a species Mm -hmm. is back to that because we miss it 
Yeah. It's fascinating we're even having this discussion because just because, you know, last night we had a, a dinner guest over and he's from Uganda. Oh, yeah. And he's a farmer in Uganda and he wanted to come see our farm in particular um, and wanted to ask us questions. So we had him over for dinner and it was like this nice exchange. So, yeah, even across the world, other parts of the world, like people are really turning in, you know, they they know that agriculture is 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 the way forward in mm-hmm. terms of and they're sharing and communicating mm-hmm. yeah yeah sharing ideas yeah you know he took our hand pump and it put out water in two pumps and he was like oh, we need one of these you know oh, really never heard of that Amazing. particular hand pump technology how do we get it to them now you know yeah. yeah yeah and that's relatively simple compared to a big pump big well it's pump. called a simple pump <laughs> brilliant all right thanks for listening everyone please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family it really just takes a couple of seconds you can also leave us a review we appreciate all forms of feedback it certainly helps us to keep our egos in check and if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed please consider contributing financially you can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sour dough. That's patreon.com backslash the sour D-O-E. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.